0: Welcome to Art Bell Somewhere in Time, the night featuring Coast to Coast AM from January fourteenth, nineteen ninety seven.
1: On the high desert and the great American Southwest. I bid you all good evening and good morning, as the case may be, across all these many time zones from the Hawaiian and Tahitian island chains, eastward to the Caribbean and the U.S. Virgin Islands, south into South America, north to the pole, and worldwide on the internet. This is Coast to Coast AM. I'm Art Bell. Well, good morning, everybody, and good morning in Canada. One of our new affiliates, CFUN, C-F-U-N-A-M, Vancouver, British Columbia. 50,000 big non-directional watts on 1410. Great to have you on board. We've been hoping to uh, uh, get on Seafund uh, during the week. They've been with us on uh, Dreamland for some time. And now they join us during the week. If we are lucky, we are going to connect with somebody named Philip Hogue here shortly. And he has a very, very interesting book that's called No Such Thing as Doomsday. Which is an interesting title, and actually I guess that's the way we're going to begin uh, our discussion with him about it. Uh, It should be uh, very, very instructive uh, indeed. He's actually a preparedness expert. Prepared for what? Prepared for all kinds of things. The uh, Soviet threat gone? Really? Maybe not. At any rate, uh, we'll try and connect with him uh, here in a moment. Are you a survivor? You may find out tonight. The book is No Such Thing as Doomsday. The author, Philip Bogue, lives in the state of Montana with his wife, Arlene, and their five children. Philip has a long involvement in preparedness. He organized, designed, and helped team manage the building of a large underground shelter project. Underground. The project is one of the largest civilian-built underground shelters in the U.S. He also organized a local volunteer fire department, and later, with one of his associates, started a volunteer ambulance service, which they currently operate Philip lectures and gives classes on the subject of shelter building and preparedness. He's written articles which have appeared in American Survival Guide. He's been interviewed on numerous radio talk shows, now another. He does consulting in the area of shelter design, systems, and organization. So here he is, Philip Hogue. Uh, Philip, welcome to the program. Good morning, Art. Good morning. Uh, Philip, number one, why did you write a book called No Such Thing as Doomsday?
2: Well, Art, I think that goes back to um, something that you refer to as the quickening. Ah, yes. And I think that uh, what we're seeing here in the what I would refer to as the end of the age is we're seeing an acceleration of events and I think all of us on certain levels, or I should say many of us, are tuning in on the level of the mass unconscious and we're we're getting an uneasy feeling that things mm-hmm. are not right. Mm-hmm. And when you turn around and start looking at what's going on in the nation and the world, uh, we're seeing a lot of things that are moving toward a point of resolution, a kind of convergence. whether. Uh, We're looking at the economy, whether we're looking at international politics, whether we're looking at the environment, whether we're looking at an increase in earth changes, whether it's seismic activity or volcanoes. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I think we're seeing is an acceleration whereby at one hand we're seeing a spiritual awakening. And at the other hand, we're seeing uh, kind of a throwing off of planetary darkness. And uh I think that it's really a, the uneasiness that a lot of people have is kind of a foreshadowing that we're seeing of future coming events. And the reason I wrote this book and I, I invested um, 10 years into... Um, Research and study and preparedness and actual activity was to help people uh, make their preparedness. I know that uh, your show has been very instrumental in waking people up uh, to things that seem to be coming in the future. I mean, whether it's uh, uh, taking people into regression through hypnosis and moving them into the future whether it's near-death experiences, whether it's Hopi Indian prophecies, uh, we, we see the same thing coming from a lot of different directions.
1: Uh, well, let's talk about the old reason to have a shelter. I remember when I was a child... Oh, we would have drills in school and duck and cover and we'd all get under our desks and nuclear weapons were going to come flying in at any moment. When they did, your desk would protect you. (laughs) And people built shelters and worried about the communist threat. And today, in the popular press, the understanding or misunderstanding is a better way to put it is that the nuclear threat is all gone we don't have to worry about that finally a generation out from under the nuclear uh... holocaust uh, a possibility um... but we really are not are we
2: No, and in fact it's very interesting that it was politically correct back in the sixties to build fallout shelters but it's very politically incorrect in the eyes of media the media, the mainline media today, to make any preparedness preparations. Uh, and it's kind of ironic because really, just from the nuclear standpoint, uh, the threat factor is a hundredfold greater today than it was in the 60s because we have a proliferation of nuclear technology into third world countries who basically hate us, and and I might say for very good reasons many times and uh, unfortunately it's not just limited to nuclear technology Uh, the thing that really frightens me equally as much as nuclear technology is the fact that we're getting a proliferation in biological warfare technology
3: that's right
1: that's right Um, the 12 monkeys scenario Um, would a would a shelter protect one from a biological threat?
2: Well, you know, uh, yes. In fact, a lot of the shelters that I've built, when I build a shelter, I don't build it strictly to deal with a nuclear threat. I look at the biological threat, I look at the nuclear threat, and I also look at the natural disturbance threat, whether it's a a massive earthquake, um, or some of the very etheric things that people talk about, like pole shift and things that are kind of scientifically hard to get a grasp on in mm. the immediate future, but, you know, there are potential out there. But just looking at the biological threat, the main problem in biological is human contact and also, uh, depending on how it's dispersed, if it's uh, an agent that's actually dispersed through the air, through an aircraft, and dust it onto a, a large area, um, the stuff is in the air and it's airborne. Um, if you know that this is going on, of course, then you can go into your shelter and if you have an air filtration system there, you can isolate yourself until the exposure period is over. Now, the, the very scary thing about biological agents are that in many times, like in the case of anthrax, You're not going to know that you've been exposed or that uh, an act of biological terrorism has occurred until long after the fact. In fact, when you start seeing the symptoms, it's going to be too late
4: to treat the disease.
1: All right. Since you've researched this a little bit, um, obviously from the point of view of protecting oneself against, say, a biological threat, if you were, Philip, a terrorist and you wanted to kill massive numbers of people. How would you do it? And what would you use?
4: It's very cost effective.
2: Uh, anthrax is a real easy one to manufacture. Um, you could put enough in a, a van and just drive around uh, Manhattan and spray it around on the streets. Really? And be out of there before people started seeing the symptoms. and you could You could kill several million people. Now, if you really wanted to be effective, you get a DC-8 aircraft, and you load that up, and you just fly over and spray uh, large metropolitan areas. Yikes. I mean, this has been well-researched by government agencies. Um, it's a real threat. And
1: Do we have uh, detectors for this? In other words, if a DC-8 was up there spraying cities as it went,
2: no, would, there is would we know? Virtually no detection.
1: We wouldn't even know about it.
2: That's correct. Now, there is good detection equipment for chemical warfare threats, but we we talked about this earlier, and we ought to probably clarify it for the listening audience. Um, the chemical threat is not as serious as the biological nuclear threat because chemical weapons are de- deployed in in small geographical areas. They um, they disperse very quickly with wind, and you cannot blanket a large area with chemical agents.
1: Perhaps a good battlefield weapon, but not... Correct. Yeah. I I understand. In other words, localized effect, then it disperses, it's gone.
5: Now, you know,
2: obviously, you know, people that are really serious about preparedness, the first thing I tell them is if you really want to do something, you need to get out of highly populated areas because you're very vulnerable and dependent in these areas.
1: Because they're going to be the
3: targets.
2: They're going to be the targets, and uh, not only to nuclear, chemical, or biological-type situations, but you also have to understand if there is any natural upheaval, if there's an earthquake. We've got a very fragile infrastructure in this nation. We're very decentralized, excuse me, we're very centralized in our food and water and power distribution.
1: That was obvious with the recent floods, uh, the problems up in the Spokane area uh, where power went down and stayed down during cold weather for days. It was awful.
2: Yes, and uh, I know we just went through a spell here in Montana, 30 below, and, uh, you know, I would have moved into my shelter if the power went down. <laughs> I've got generators down there, and it stays a constant, you know, uh, 48 degrees, and I've got all the luxuries of home there.
1: What do we know? Would you tell me a little bit about anthrax? Um, If somebody should spray that, for example, uh, how would the symptoms manifest themselves? How would it spread? Uh, Would it simply be an air mist that would be inhaled, uh, and then, what, days or weeks later you begin getting sick, or what? How how does that work? I
2: think it's a matter of days. Uh, Days. In fact, uh, let's see, I'll have to turn to Chapter 4 here. All right. Uh, Chemical and Biological Warfare, let's see, Chapter 44. So you obviously found my book there, right? Oh, yes. (laughs) Okay.
1: I've got it. Uh,
2: And then, looking here, let me move on. Uh, It's fairly quickly on uh, biological agents. I don't know if I have the exact figures here uh, on the actual time, but it's it's within days that you start seeing the symptoms. And unless you actually know that you've been immediately exposed to it, it's very difficult to treat it with antibiotics.
1: It is uh, treatable?
2: Um, to a certain extent, it is treatable, yes.
1: Uh, but if there were mass exposure... Um not everybody would get treatment, would they?
2: Yeah, that would be my assessment. And mm-hmm. then there are there are other more deadly uh biological agents like Ebola virus and, mm-hmm. and we're already seeing uh mainline media <laughs> preparation for for that sort of event and just some of the uh movies that have been out. Uh But there's a lot of information out there that goes into uh, the fact that there's a very good possibility that Ebola was a man-made virus.
1: When when I was young, a lot of the thinking was, if there was a nuclear war, uh, and I suppose this might might translate to a biological uh, assault as well, uh, you might not want to be a survivor
2: well let's let 's back up on that I right. think that in the mainline media we 've been barraged for years with propaganda from the unilateral disarmament groups, and you know they have certain jargon like nuclear winter right uh like the earth will be sterilized for a thousand years
6: right This is
2: absolutely totally unscientific and not true um It's very easy to survive nuclear war, if you've made preparations. Uh, If you've made preparations to protect yourself for 14 to 30 days from fallout, radioactive fallout from the detonation of a nuclear weapon decays very quickly. Now another thing that they try and mix around and confuse people with is they start talking about Chernobyl. Chernobyl is a completely different situation. Uh, the byproducts of a nuclear reactor can take thousands of years to decay. The decay rate of of the gamma, alpha, and beta rays produced in nuclear fallout from the detonation of a tactical nuclear weapon are very quick, very quick.
1: Uh, Well, we dropped bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and um, that was habitable land uh, shortly thereafter.
2: That's correct. In fact, uh, I've seen some old news clips of Nevada uh, nuclear tests and the day after they're out there walking around with uh, reporters. It's true. (laughs) Of course, they probably didn't realize that uh, those reporters were picking up some exposure.
1: (laughs) Now, it is possible to make a dirty nuclear weapon, isn't it? That's
2: correct, it is. And and, uh, this, you know, I think that... type of action would strictly be a terrorist action, because you have to understand from the point of view of real nuclear war, uh, whether it involves the now reformed Soviets or the Red Chinese, uh, the whole tactic when you look into communist war philosophy is not to destroy and devastate uh, a country but to inflict minimal damage to the point that you can take over and use the resources.
1: In other words, you would not want to destroy that which you were seeking to take over.
2: Correct. You wouldn't want to contaminate the landscape that you want to occupy.
1: Now, you said reformed Soviet Union. Maybe. Russia is still a pretty strange place. I was there. China is not all that reformed. Uh, Economically, they're taking some pretty good steps. Politically, they have not budged. And then, of course, there's North Korea. Um, stay right where you are, Philip. We'll be right back to you. Philip Hogue is my guest. His book, No Such Thing as Doomsday.
0: You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight, featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from January Fourteenth, 1997. a replay of Coast to Coast AM from January 14, 1997.
1: You might warm up your computer. We've got a big announcement coming up at midnight tonight. A lot of you know what it is. Some of you may not. Warm up the uh, Pentium or whatever it is and get ready. All right. Uh, back now to Philip Hogue. And uh, Philip, Uh, A lot of people these days would say, fallout shelter, shelter underground for earth changes or uh, biological warfare. Have you lost your mind? (laughs) Correct. Yeah, people incorrect, uh, totally politically incorrect. Well, you know, they said
2: the same thing to Noah.
1: (laughs) I bet they did. Ship. Ship.
2: Yeah, dry land, both animals.
1: Have you lost your mind? <laughs> That's right. Um, all right. Somebody named Bill in Rockport, uh, Missouri, sent a fax just now and said, Art, ask Philip, does his perspective on the future reflect generally the current views of Elizabeth uh, Prophet?
2: Well,. Uh I'm, I'm not sure what he's referring to as the present views of Elizabeth Clare Prophet. Um I think that, from my understanding of her views, that she is concerned about the situation of uh, the communist threat. Um, but I don't think her concern is, is limited solely to the communist threat. I think she's also concerned about the potential for disruption of... uh what i would call natural earth changes mm-hmm. um and uh, you know i i am concerned about all of this
1: so the answer really is yes to yes. some degree uh um, do you know elizabeth Clearly? yes i know Probably. her Uh huh. i find that woman an extremely interesting individual and i have been trying to interview her for a long time <laughs> very interesting what can you tell me about her
2: Well, uh, I've actually known her for, I think, about 24 years now, and uh, you know she, you know, let me let me clarify one thing here. There are, what I see, two categories of people who fall into this area. You've got the people that that claim to be channels. Yeah. and I know we you've talked on the show a little bit about what you think about channels.
1: I'm not big on channels. <laughs>
2: I'm not either. Uh, I'm not really sold on to the whole psychic situation. I think it's a can of worms. And uh, depending on which way the wind blowing is blowing, is that's the kind of result you get out of it. Uh, Elizabeth Clare uh represents herself as a prophet. And... Uh, She does not necessarily come out and say uh, that such and such is going to happen on such and such a date. Um, I think her basic message is, and you have to understand I'm not a representative of their organization, but I can tell you uh, what I read to be her basic message is that uh, we're coming to the end of the age and we're coming to what you would refer to as a karmic resolution. and this ties into the quickening.
1: That's what I believe, firmly. uh, We are headed towards something.
2: And, you know, uh, Nostradamus saw this also. And that um, it's not that she is saying that there is going to be nuclear war, but she's saying that we're moving to this point of resolution and people are very naive to the threat of nuclear war and that people should prepare for it. in the same sense uh that the, the potential for the earth itself i mean i kind of look at the earth itself almost as a living organism and if you look at nature nature has always exhibit exhibited the ability to throw off uh s- situations of disease of overpopulation
6: mm-hmm.
2: uh if there's an o- overpopulation of a species there's a natural counterbalance that comes into play, whether it's a natural event, whether it's a a predator. Um, And I kind of look at the situation of mankind at this point, uh, that we're moving to a point where we may look at a natural resolution to the problems that we're not dealing with. Now, these are not foregone conclusions. You know, the future is not set in concrete. And uh, Nostradamus even alluded to this. It's a pliable element. We we create the future from our position today, but we have to be careful that we don't get euphoric. I, I run into people when I go to preparedness shows, and they'll come up to me and say, "You have a bad attitude."
1: A bad attitude. Yeah, they
2: say, "You know, I'm positive. I think positive. I don't need any of this because I think positive." And no. I say, "Well, I say now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Come on over here." I say. Now, do you own a car? The guy says, yeah, I own a car. I said, do you drive a car? He says, yeah, I drive a car. I says, does your car have a spare tire? He says, yeah. I said, would you take a long trip, a thousand-mile trip, without a spare tire? He goes, no, of course not. I said, then why the heck would you consider living in a nuclear age with a proliferation of biological and and, uh, nuclear technology out there, and a lot of third-world countries that hate us, why would you travel through a nuclear age without a spare tire in your truck? I said, preparedness is your spare tire. Obviously if you decided to go on that long trip and you knew there was nails scattered on the road, wouldn't it be a little foolish to say I'm gonna protect myself with a positive attitude?
6: <laughs> well he
2: stuttered and stammered and stumbled away. He couldn't argue with me. And you know, this is the point you know that I think Elizabeth Clare Prophet has tried to make. You know, she's gotten a lot of bad rap from the media of uh, being a doomsdayer. Uh and, uh, well, know, yeah.
1: then maybe the title of your book is appropriate. No such thing as doomsday. No such thing as, uh, uh, you know, a flat tire if if you've got a spare. Uh, same sort of thing. So that accounts for the title of your book. You're saying there may be a big problem, but it need not be doomsday for you personally if, if you, prepare. you
2: prepare. I mean, my attitude is... I have a different attitude about preparedness. I mean there's a lot there's several preparedness camps out there There's one camp of people that look at it from a purely survival point of view now i 'm not in this to save my skin I 'm in this out of a sense of mission and I believe and my goal is to get to the other side. I think we're we've got a storm coming. I can't tell you the wind speed. Or the wind direction and velocity. Well, I can tell you there's a storm on the horizon. I can't tell you how high the waves are going to be because I, you know, I don't profess to have a crystal ball. But I'm looking on getting to the other side. And the reason I'm looking to get to the other side is I think there's going to be a brighter day. And I want to, to retain and carry through my values, uh, spiritual values. And I want my children to get to the other side to carry these things on. I mean, I really believe that all of us you know sooner or later we're all going to die. Let's face it that's and that's
6: right.
2: that's one thing I really deal with in my book that you know very other few people very few people have really dealt with is you know how to deal with death and dying. I mean in our society, we like to shove that back in the corner, you know, and we don't like to deal with it uh, but that's something that we may see on the future and, and my attitude is we all need to do our best and prepare, you know, and if our number's up, our number's up, you know many of us have philosophies of uh, the ongoing nature of life, and uh, I also do and i I don't really fear death I've had near death death experiences
6: in the past,
2: and uh but I have a sense of mission, and that's why I prepare, and that's what i why I suggest other people prepare you know and what I t- tried to do in this book is make a how-to book of how to turn your concern into action i think your show has been phenomenal in waking people up and they've got concern now and and what i come through on this book is how to take that concern and actually
1: what translate it what to do yeah right um all right well number 1 what to do a lot of people that are listening to you right now live in the middle of Los Angeles, San Diego, Seattle, uh, Chicago, you name it, you know, the big cities, uh, what can they do?
2: Well, obviously, what I do in the book is I kind of talk about different threats when I work through. Obviously, let's let's just look at a threat scenario. All right. Okay, what would happen if we had uh, a nuclear attack on this country? Um uh, We have a very fragile infrastructure when it comes to the distribution of food. Uh, If you're in Southern California, uh, the availability of water is a very fragile infrastructure. Mm. When you start looking at how much food is on the shelves of the local grocery stores, you're looking at a maximum of seven days of food supply. Uh, And uh, When you look at your dependency on the electric meter out there, uh, people just start, need to start thinking, what would happen if the power went off?
1: Not too many people have to think real hard about that. We've you got, know, uh, as I said, in the Northwest, hundreds of thousands of people lost power. And, you know, when the power is there, you don't even think about it. When it goes off, you begin to realize how much it really affects uh, everything you need to do.
2: Right. In fact, even here, I live in rural Montana. And I have neighbors, and I say to them, and a lot of these people are very preparedness-minded. I say to them, well, what are you going
5: to do if the power goes down? Mm -hmm.
2: And, uh, you know, I say, you've got a 600-foot well there. You know, you're not going to be able to flush the toilet. You're not going to be able to get a drink of water. You know, what are you going to do? And going back to people in the cities, all I can say to you is if you're in a situation where you can't relocate out of a highly populated area. And
1: a lot of people can't.
2: And I understand you can only do the best you can do. And number one, you need to get a long-term food storage program. Uh, and a lot of people now, this gets really bad-mouthed in the mainline media. Anybody who puts long, who puts aside long-term food storage is a hoarder. You know, and that is just a very distorted uh, view of the situation. If you put away long-term food storage when there's an abundance of food available you're making it easier for everybody else because you're not going to be competing for food rationing when it happens. Right. So it should be encouraged. But the reason that certain elements in the government don't like this is because it makes you less
1: dependent. controllable.
2: Right. And dependency breeds control. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not anti-government. I think we've got a lot of good people in the government. Unfortunately... We have some black elements, a minority, that seem to have control of what's going on.
1: Actually, I'm not a big anti-government person either. However, uh, there was some regulation or law proposed recently with regard to hoarding, wasn't there?
2: Right, and I think it's whatever they decide is a two-week food supply. What what the hell
1: are they talking about? What right do they have to tell us that we can't have more than two weeks or two months or two years of food if we want to?
5: Well, I don't get that. Art, if you go and you read
2: the U.S. Constitution and you look at uh, 60% of the laws on the books, you would say, what right do they have to do this? Uh, you
1: yeah, know, but I'm asking about this specific one. What, is, what do they care? There's plenty of food out there right now. If, if we want to store some up, so what?
2: Well, I think, you know, and I, I cover this in the book. When you look back to what the Soviets did to the people in the Ukraine. They created an artificial they couldn't subjugate the people, so they created an artificial famine. There were tons of food in the warehouse, and they starved millions of people and When you start looking at uh, weather modification technology and and some of the stuff with harps and the capabilities of modifying weather and you start putting together the big picture um, it's a marvelous tool for controlling people to control food.
1: Well, it's true. Uh, you could have all the guns in the world, and if you did not have food, the day would come or the hour would come when you would gladly say, here's my guns, give me some food.
4: Well, that's very
2: interesting, too, because you know I don't have this in my hand, but from reliable sources, uh, some friends of mine came up with some documentation from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Stating that USDA offices, which would be your ration food rationing centers, would also be gun collection
6: points.
2: (laughs) So when you equate the two, uh, we're seeing that uh, there would be no food rationing without the surrender of firearms. Uh,
1: Very dark scenario.
2: Right. Uh, You know, I I really see I don't really cover the totalitarian threat in my books to any great detail for a number of reasons. One, I try to make my book as broad-based as possible so that uh, it doesn't turn off a great deal of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think this is a real concern. And uh, I think what I try to convey into the book is being self-sufficient, not being dependent. And, uh, you know, I think the worst-case scenario would be our nation's government is becoming a totalitarian government. I'd rather
7: face
1: nuclear war, quite frankly. Uh, or some sort of civil disruption. I, I absolutely don't rule that out. It doesn't take many people to get something like that started, and we went through a rash of it. Uh, now it's calmed down a bit, but, you know, the whole militia movement, that business. Right. Uh, very concerned about that. And uh, so there are a variety of threats, whether it's terrorism, The old nuclear threat, uh, domestic disruption, you are correct. A million different things could happen. Financial collapse, uh, that's one I'm very personally concerned with. We just had a presidential election. The debt, the the monstrous debt we have and what that is going to do, uh, not even debated. Not even debated. And in a very few years, all the money we would use for any social programs is going to be gone to interest on the debt. And that's going to cause some serious trouble, Philip. Serious.
2: It's it's an impending storm that's on the horizon.
1: Yes. Uh, As you mentioned, weather changes. Now, I'm beginning to think uh, the weather is changing. I'm not saying that... uh, uh, some little Wizard of Oz behind a curtain is pulling levers i don 't know maybe it 's environmental, but the weather does seem to be changing so uh, you build shelters. what kind of shelters
4: well uh, most of the
2: shelters that you know let me let me go back to square one here. I started out at a point that I was concerned about preparedness, and so the natural thing that I did that a lot of your listeners out there will try and do is I'm going to contact FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management management, uh, Agency, and I'm going to see if they have any information on how to prepare. And so I did that 10, 12, 13 years ago, and they send you out these Xeroxes of uh, 1960 brochures, and they were virtually worthless. There really wasn't any information there. That uh, was comprehensive, that was usable, that was in any way effective um, so the scenario that they were using back on the sixties was the old doomsday scenario
6: mm-hmm. that if
2: If we had a nuclear war, the Russians would fire off all their weapons, and the u s would fire off all their weapons, uh, and then you know the dust would settle, and then after fourteen days uh, the radio- radioactivity would have decayed to the point that we could all come out and start the new age, (laughs) you know, rebuild civilization.
6: Right. Well,
2: that is a really outgrown uh, scenario. Uh, The new scenario for nuclear war is protracted nuclear war, which which could go on for several years. Really? And uh, this is, you know, government studies. Uh, And so when I started studying into this and finding out, you know, what the real story was, I started building... Shelter systems that had longer duration. A lot of the the FEMA brochures are based on the the uh, 14 day to 30 day stay scenario. Most of the structures that I've built and been involved in, we built them to go maybe a year and a half.
1: That's a long time in a shelter.
2: It's like uh, it's like building a submarine or a spaceship, except it doesn't go anywhere. Underground. Underground. Uh, the particular one that. Uh, I organized and built is about 7,000 square feet.
3: Ooh, that's big.
2: Uh, And we outfitted it with three diesel generators. It's got, you know, running water, hot water, uh, you know, showers, flush toilets, uh, kitchen facility. Uh And, you know, you could close the doors on that for a year and a half.
1: Wow. Uh, You know all those people that you talked about that uh, have rose-colored glasses, don't think about, don't care about preparedness? The one that you lectured about the spare tire? Right. They'd be a-knocking at your door.
5: Well, that's a serious concern.
1: And it's the one we're going to talk about when we get back. Stay right where you are. Philip Hogue is my guest. He builds shelters. Maybe you should, too. We'll talk more about it.
0: You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from January 14th, 1997. somewhere in time. Tonight's program originally aired January 14th, 1997.
1: Well, all right, here I am once again. Good morning, everybody. Philip Hogue is my guest, and he has authored a very comprehensive book called No Such Thing as Doomsday. We'll get back to him. He builds shelters. uns, 7,000 square feet. That's a big, big underground shelter. now to Philip Hogue and I would ask my audience to ask yourself if something occurred nuclear biological chemical natural whatever would you be one of the people in a shelter in an area where you had food and water and some sort of electricity or would you be one of the people knocking on somebody's uh, shelter door which category would you be in if that occurred right this minute it's an interesting question now back to my guest Philip Hogue Philip welcome back Hi art we were talking about security yes
2: well security is kind of the sensational issue <laughs> you know the social trend today is toward disarming the public yes and uh, it Gun ownership and shelter defense considerations are potentially politically incorrect.
1: All right. Well, a lot of people have joined us here at the top of the hour in large cities. You build shelters, right? actual shelters, a big one. You've got a 7,000-foot shelter. That's more like a warehouse. That's gigantic. And right at the top of the hour, I said, look, if something awful happened, biological, uh, even chemical, Nuclear, whatever, uh, Earth changes. Uh, a lot of people know now even more that you've got a big shelter, lots of food, lots of other stuff. They're going to come. They're going to come knocking at your door. I remember an old Twilight Zone where people went down into the shelter. I'm sure you saw. I remember that. Yeah. And the people were pounding lettuce in. Have you no mercy? That's what would happen to you. Well, you know, I can talk
2: about that. Uh, number one, if you build a shelter, you you really need to consider the security factor uh, because a shelter is a very vulnerable thing. I mean, you can make strong doors on it, but no matter how well you design your system, your air supply is is very vulnerable. When you're in a shelter, you're like being under the water with a snorkel, and so you know this is something you have to look at. And now. A lot of times when you make security preparations, people will accuse you of being anti-government. Yep. And uh doing this because you're planning some confrontation with the government.
1: Are That's... you a militia member, Philip?
2: No, I'm not. You're no, not. I'm not. I so... I'm not going to badmouth the militia. I think they've gotten a lot of bad misrepresentation. Uh I'm not a member of the militia. Uh but what I would like to say is that uh the reason I make security and I advocate making security preparations is not because the threat of government but the concern that in a crisis there might not be enough government do you follow what I'm saying?
1: oh very very well yes indeed as a matter of fact even even in the lesser disasters um, I'll I'll tell you something up in Washington in uh, eastern Washington and elsewhere when the power went out the lines went down The ice got on the lines. Everything went down. Frankly, a lot of civil authorities told people, you're on your own. And that was a minor matter compared to what could occur.
2: That's correct. Um, And unfortunately but true, I think that in a real emergency, like we saw the story of Noah, all those people that mocked him while he was building the ark, they all came banging on his door when the water started rising. Now, I, I really believe that Noah, could he have opened the door, would have opened the door and let the people in. I think he was a big-hearted guy. The problem was, is he if God had let him open the door, those people would have thrown him and the animals overboard.
3: Sure. Uh,
2: so, basically, what I cover in my security section in the book is I discuss this issue in... in and I go into some very practical things that people can do. But the bottom line is I think everybody has a moral responsibility, if they own a shelter, to fill it to the capacity of the life support systems. And now what I mean by life support systems is you can't just put an infinite amount of people in a confined space underground. It ha- you have to circulate air through it, right? And, and I have a very comprehensive chapter in this book on air supply systems, air filtration, and whatnot, and how to calculate how many people your air supply system will support. Because oxygen is not the e- is not the issue; it's CO two buildup. And when people breathe, they give off CO two, and if you're not moving enough ventilation through there, CO two levels quickly rise to a level. Where it starts killing people long before you've used up the oxygen.
1: All right. Well, I've had a lot of people who have said they've seen your shelter or know know about it, and it is very impressive. How many people could a 7,000 uh, square foot shelter hold?
2: Again, it goes back to the air supply system. Exactly. In our system, we've got about 1,200 cfm, and you know, according to the government uh, recommendations, it's 7.5 cfm for our. Uh, climatic region, you know that equates to about hundred and fifty people,
1: about hundred and fifty people,
2: you know, and the point is is it's a very impersonal issue at the point that you fill the capacity of your shelter it's an imp- it's an impersonal issue of closing the door. You've got nothing personal against the people that are still outside, but I'll guarantee you they will take it very personally and oh, that's yes. Where, oh
3: yes,
2: that's where the security issues come in. And you know, I discuss things in the book about practical security and how to protect your air supply systems. And that's what it basically focalizes around. But it's everybody needs to know what the capacity of their shelter is. Now, you know, there's a lot of people that say, Well, you know, I could never deal with that situation, so I won't build a shelter. I just assume die.
3: Well that's right.
2: You know, somebody's gotta carry things on and
1: um Well apparently the government feels that way. Now while they have not uh, sponsored a big effort for the civilian population to build shelters. Uh, for some reason, they f- have felt a need to build them for themselves.
5: There's uh, a very comprehensive book
2: out there. I go into this a little bit, but there's a book out there uh, called uh, Underground Bases and Government Underground Bases and Shelters. That's right. And he very comprehensively goes through and and lists all the known shelters. I mean, he infers the presence of some very deep underground tunneling, which he can't substantiate, but he can show you, he documents in that book uh, the existence of the planning work that went into it, and the patenting of the technology technology to accomplish it. Believe maps, me,
1: I, I've seen on 60 Minutes and some other programs like it. They have shown some government shelter.
2: Right, government. We know about Iron Mountain. I mean, and uh, you know all the other known government facilities. And they've invested billions of dollars. Yes. Uh, we know about those. Uh, in fact, there was an interesting story about they they built a lead-lined vehicle for getting uh, government members out of Washington, D.C., I think they finally mm-hmm. figured out that they weren't going to be able to get them out by helicopter. And The only thing I could figure that this thing must be a track vehicle that can drive over the top of the civilian cars that have jammed up the interstate. <laughs> it's, Great. <a> sad, Great. <laughs> it's kind of a sad scenario, but the government has made extensive preparations in spite of Downplaying it, the federal emergency management uh, facilities around the country and the regional centers. I went down to the Denver facility. Uh, They've got uh, in downtown Denver there. They've got a mile square uh, federal block there, and and they've got the regional FEMA center there. And we walked up, and it, it was sort of impressive, and it had this, you know, combination push button thing on the door. You know, to get in, and so we stood there until some guy came up and pushed the buttons, and then we just walked in behind him.
6: <laughs> really?
2: <laughs> and so then you went down these stairways, and then there were two massive blast doors that went down to a security gate, and so we just walked down, and there was uh, looked like a guy about ready for retirement. He was the uh, uh, security officer there, and we said uh, we'd like to get some brochures, and the guy about wet his pants, you know. I, I, you know, he's looking around. How did you get in here? And they had,
1: <laughs> they had camera, security
2: cameras, and I could look at his monitor screens, you know, shooting down these tunnels and everywhere. And he keeps getting on the phone trying to get somebody to come out to get rid of us, you know.
1: Yeah.
2: And, and we're, we're scoping out the whole operation. And uh,
1: You're already deep inside the security requesting <laughs> brochures.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and then finally they, they brought They wouldn't even give us brochures. They brought us out this application sure. that we had to send to the state. Uh, FEMA director, you know, to even qualify to get the brochures. And I so see. then we went outside and we inspected their air intake and exhaust ducts for their generators, which I thought were pretty uh, poorly constructed. And, you know, <laughs> and we were raising some eyebrows and
4: like, what are these people doing out here? <laughs> you
1: know? Well, now that is the weak, weak link, right? In other words, for any shelter underground, you've got to have access to air at some point somewhere above ground
6: right or and if they have if
1: these guys who are coming knocking on your door uh if they get angry uh, cuz you're not letting them in which you're not going to uh they're going to go looking for your air supply right
2: right um you know we've we've designed countermeasures for that uh, but the other aspect is having the ability to Be able to operate without incoming air for a period of time. I I go into this in the book. You can calculate how long you can close up your system based on how many cubic feet of air and the number of people in the shelter. And also there's a few other things you can do. Uh, You remember in uh, Apollo 13, the big problem they had there is they had a lithium hydroxide right. module that they had to retrofit. Yes. And, and there's two elements. One is called uh, sodium hydroxide and the other is lithium hydroxide. And these are chemical compounds you can use to absorb CO2 out of the air. And if you have these and you've got a system set up, you can actually uh, go a long time in a confined area without Uh, people perishing because as long as you can scrub the CO2 out of the air the oxygen will last a long time so in some cases it's a matter of having the capability to wait them out (laughs) Mm. if if you follow what I mean.
1: Yes I do. How long uh, with the planned number of people in your shelter could you go without access to outside air? Uh,
4: I could potentially go 33 hours
1: 33 hours. And I presume in that period of time, you would figure out or try to figure out how to clear your access to outside air again.
2: Right. And I always recommend that people look at non-lethal means. You know, a lot of people think, well, you know, the world would be over and you'd never have to answer for activities that you engage in. But my attitude is always, you know, don't count on, you know, having to answer. Uh, not don't count on not having to answer for what you did. You All
1: know? right. So, what's a good non-lethal means of stopping somebody intent on screwing up your air supply?
2: Well, bear spray is a, is is one thing. You know, it's, it incapacitates people. Uh, it doesn't create any real physical damage. You know, what
1: what, what kind of spray?
2: Uh, bear spray. <laughs> your pepper spray.
1: Oh, pepper. <laughs> yes. You know,
2: people can be very creative. Uh, the other thing is, is I really emphasize we have a very comprehensive communication section, is having the ability to c- communicate with the authorities. And communicate with the authorities and say, hey, I've got a problem here. I'm a taxpayer. How do you want us to deal with it? Put the ball back in their lap. Tape record it.
6: <laughs> uh-huh.
2: You know, uh, because, you know, life's going to go on and, and, uh, these situations are probably going to have to be resolved after the fact. Um, you know, I don't mean to harp too much on the security aspect, but it's a, it's a real concern.
1: Of course. Of course. All the people without spare tires, uh, they're going to want tires. And you're going to be the guy with tires.
8: And, you know, I I
2: really wish if I had the money and the resources, I could fulfill myself in life just going out and building shelters for the civilian population. And I think our government has an obligation to do this. What people don't realize is Oak Ridge Laboratories spent, I think, close to 12 years after they developed the bomb, developing civil defense technology. And then the Soviets took that technology. They they took it and they applied it. We signed something in the McNamara period of time uh, called the MAD Treaty. It's called Mutual Assured Destruction. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that the Soviets are going to hold our civilian population as a nuclear hostage. And we are supposed to be able to hold the Soviet population as a nuclear hostage.
1: Uh, But one little problem. They have built shelters.
2: That's correct. Well, see, this has happened over and over. As soon as the ink got dried on this treaty, uh, where we promised we wouldn't develop a national civil defense network, and they promised that they wouldn't, because the whole idea is, if neither of us had civil defense, neither of us would initiate nuclear war because it would result in the destruction of our civilian population. Mm. As soon as the ink was dried, they developed a national civil defense program. they sheltered 70% of their population.
1: That's what I've heard.
2: Not only that, they borrowed money from Western banks and built blast-hardened facilities for the KGB and all the branches of the military and the Politburo. So this is not the end of it. Okay, then we came to the ABM Treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. This is strictly a defensive, not offensive. You know, it gets so bad-mouthed. This is defensive. All right,
1: well, uh, why have we not built an ABM system uh, that, as you mentioned, is defensive, simply meant to stop incoming ICBMs or whatever? Uh, What's wrong with that?
2: It's called insanity and treason. I mean, we're looking at global politics here. Uh, vulnerability breeds control. We talked about this with food. It's the same story with defense. Now, uh, what most Americans don't realize is even if there was an accident, all right, say there was an accidental launch, right. something went haywire, right, and a Soviet weapon got launched at the United States. We do not have a means of stopping
1: it. No way to stop it.
2: No way to stop it. That's insanity. We have the technology. We're talking defensive, not offensive. Now, that is not the case with the Soviets. Where we left off, we were talking about the 1972 anti-ballistic missile treaty. Correct. As soon as the ink was dried, they started deploying, and they now have the only operational Anti-ballistic missile system. They have it. The, uh, the I think it's called the Prashinko radar installation
1: mm-hmm. is a huge
2: structure, larger than the Great Pyramid.
1: And I believe ABMs uh, ring Moscow, don't they?
2: Oh yes, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, the everything they've done there is clearly in violation of the ABM treaty. But we're still spinning our wheels in Congress. Uh, it's virtual insanity. We're not talking about creating a bigger bomb to nuke somebody. We're talking about protecting our civilian civilian population and what's even scarier is we have scrapped our national uh paper civil defense program. Uh you know, it used to be in the major cities they had civilian shelters that had food, that had
1: medical supplies. That I, stuff I remember. Is, I remember they they had them marked.
2: And they're all gone. You see these water containers, they're using them for trash cans in the county building. <laughs> you know, uh, a government shelter, a civilian government shelter, is nothing more than a good place to die, you know, at this point in the, in the face of a national emergency. Uh, but then again, they've made adequate preparations for the government officials themselves,
3: the oh, yes. highest
2: echelons of state government. Oh, yes. Um, and so... You know, this, this is a, a very real concern that we don't have an anti-ballistic missile system in this country. This is, protects civilians, all right? We have the technology. We had the technology. We're getting ready to deploy it. The Russians came running up and said, oh, this this
1: just escalates the arms uh, hold on. We're at the bottom of the hour. We'll be right back and talk
9: about that.
0: You're listening to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from January 14th. 1997. Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from January 14th, 1997.
1: My guest is Philip Hove, Underground Shelters, A Thing of the Past. Question mark? I don't think so. And uh, I've got a number of questions for him, and we will let you ask questions shortly. Apparently, a lot of people are very interested, uh, uh, Philip, in what you're saying, and uh, here are some questions from um, Frank in Cleveland, Ohio. My question, what can a person uh, do to build a shelter if there's no sufficient financial background for that person to do so? Obviously, building a shelter requires quite a large amount of money.
2: Not necessarily. Um, I go into a lot of options. I have a chapter... Called shelter types, and it's lo- not limited to just below ground shelters. It discusses uh, basement fallout shelters and some very expedient measures, including using tun- tunnels and mines and uh, using the shielding from commercial buildings. There's a lot of options. Y- you're not strictly limited to a high tech, uh, very expensive operation. There's a- there's a lot of options in uh... expedient things that people can do Um it can be done and my attitude is where there's a will there's a way okay there, there's a there's a divine solution to every problem
5: if we pursue it all
1: Without... right uh... give give him an idea then uh... can you you say you could build a could you build an adequate shelter in a basement
2: Yes. like uh... in my shelter section what i basically do as I go over the pros and cons of every option, there is no silver bullet in the universe. Everything has its pros and cons. And like, for instance, a basement shelter, the, the drawbacks of a basement shelter is that uh, if you are, say, potentially in a target area uh, where there's going to be overpressure, uh, there's always a danger that if you have a shelter in a basement that the house could collapse on top of you that there could be a fire in the area which could produce uh, CO fumes uh, which are heavier than air that could kill people in basements. This is predominantly the people that were in shelters in the Dresden bombings in Germany during World War II. Most of the people in shelters that died died from CO poisoning, from the heavier-than-air gases. Um, And so that's the real drawback to a fallout shelter. Now, if you're not... Uh, near a, quote, target area, if you're, you know, 12 miles away from a known target, then you're not going to be affected by overpressure. And a fallout shelter has many advantages. One, everything is very near at hand. Two, it's a multi-use space. As long as you, and I discuss how to construct shielding in a basement shelter. I've got it all in the book here. All right. Uh, as long as you construct the proper shielding you 've got a lot of things very near at hand you don 't have to go far to get into it. You just run downstairs and like i say that 's a space that you know is not just solely dedicated to being a fallout shelter. it can be a rec room, it can be a TV room, it can be an exercise room there 's a lot of creative use you can make for that space so a basement shelter is probably one of the most uh, cost effective means that you can employ now. When you start looking at large commercial buildings, uh, I've got a whole chapter in here that I talk about radiation shielding all right, and how to calculate it. If you've got the basement in a large building, you've got a lot more uh, radiation shielding setting up on top of you. You can look around and see what sort of available commercial structures there are in your area and see if there's one that's got some pretty good shielding into it. Uh, The considerations you have to look for is number 1 you're going to need a source of water. Now a lot of times in a large building there's a, there's a standing reservoir of water sitting above you in the entire plumbing system. Right. Uh there's hot water heater tanks in your basement. A lot of times there's uh you know there's a lot of expedient things that you can draw on for water. That's an important factor.
10: Generally speaking,
2: it's not that hard to deal with radioactive fallout in terms of air filtration. Uh, you know the old school of thought—they get into using these expensive Swiss-made carbon air filtration systems. But you only re- really need those systems if you are very close to a target area. And I tell people, man, if you live close to a target area, you need to move. That's the most cost-effective thing you can do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because even if you had the best shelter in the world—you know, a state of the art built by the Rand Corporation in your backyard—you know. Uh, the first thing you may know, the first thing you may realize that you've got a problem is the flash. Yeah. And at that point, uh, the neutron radiation just cooked you. You're running for the door. Even if you built, beat the overpressure to the door, the neutron radiation just zapped you if you're that close. So
1: you are the walking dead.
2: Yeah, you're fried. You're just, you're toasted. So my point to people is, if you're that close to a target area, The most cost-effective thing you can do is move. I'm not really an advocate of building blast shelters, per se, because anybody that needs a blast shelter is in the wrong place.
1: Mm. Well, there's a lot of people in wrong places.
2: Right. Well, it's not hard to figure out if you're in the wrong place. And the other thing that the unilateral disarmament groups have perpetuated to the mainline media is that the whole United States is going to be devastated. That's not the case, and I've got the charts and everything in my book that show you what the overpressure and the heat effects are from the detonation of both uh, ground burst weapons and air burst weapons. And I talk about the whole technology of, of weapons and the detonation of weapons and what the effects are on populated areas. And if you're out 12 miles away from a ground burst, all right, you're not even going to hardly feel the wind from that thing on a one de- megaton weapon. All right? Uh, and most of the weapons in the U.S. and Soviet arsenal have been tailored down to kiloton weapons because of the effectiveness of multiple warhead weapons. And you get more bang for your buck out of multiple smaller weapons than you do out of the big weapons, you know, the 50 megaton you know, they only carry those around right now for taking out major hardened targets.
1: All right, another, another question I have, and, and you're right, is that almost seems to me to be treasonous. Um, because in
2: the Constitution, the government has the responsibility for the common
1: defense. Right. That's the common defense.
2: And every government official has sworn an oath to uphold the U.S.
1: Constitution.
2: So you can interpret that as you wish.
1: Mm-hmm. How um, how accurate uh, do you think the Russian weapons really are?
2: They're very accurate. Uh, from all the intelligence people that I've talked to, um, you know, in the old days in the fifties, they were very inaccurate, and and that's part of the reason for the larger megaton weapons.
6: Mm-hmm.
2: But uh, the The Soviets have their own GPS system. Uh, The technology is out there for very accurate weapon delivery systems, but
10: it's not limited to the Soviets.
2: You have to understand that the Red Chinese now have their own mobile launch system. The United States doesn't even have a mobile launch system for its uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. The Soviets have got them. You can't track them. They run around like cockroaches all over the countryside, so you can't target them and take them out now the Red Chinese have developed the mobile launch system. They're putting an unprecedented amount of their national resource into upgrading their military with the vocal intent of world domination.
1: Well, I was going to say, what are they going to do with them? Uh, uh, we're not about to attack China, near as I know.
2: And it's ludicrous that we're giving these people. We are. We've just opened the doors and given them military technology. Not only that, we give them the most favored nation trading status. And I these know. are the people when they were having what was it three months ago? They were having the naval exercises outside of Taiwan. Yes. And when we, you know, stood up and said a few things in defense of Taiwan, they said you should be more concerned about Los Angeles.
3: That's
1: right.
2: What were they saying there? Uh,
1: they were saying, don't screw with this, or L.A.'s going to go up in smoke.
2: Right. Uh, and now we start looking at North Korea, and they have bought uh, ICBM delivery vehicles from the Chinese, and they've been working on modifying them, and And there's reasonable uh, evidence to suggest that they already have nuclear capability.
3: That's correct.
2: Um, and, you know, we start looking at, the proliferation of this technology in uh, third world Arab countries that hate us. Uh, And this gets to be a very frightening issue. I know Nostradamus pretty clearly indicated uh, the possibility of um, a nuclear strike on New York City. And uh, when you start thinking about the fact that there there are more Jewish people living in New York City than there are in Israel, you can see that it's a prime target for uh, an Arab terrorist act. Um, there was an interesting movie. In fact, I just saw this the other day. Have you ever seen that movie, The Dawn's Early Light? Yes. Oh, I thought it was a pretty interesting movie.
1: I've seen just about every movie of that genre. Uh, I love them. Uh, all right, here's another one. A great show, Art. Please ask Philip if it is better to store food in metal or glass containers. How, and, and how do you store water?
2: Okay. Now, I go into that in... Great detail. I've got a very extensive chapter on food and water in here. Uh, I've seen huge amounts of food turn into chicken feed, uh, mainly because people uh, stored it improperly. Uh, we had a rule in our shelter that if you brought in anything that wasn't either in a uh, number 10 metal can, in a plastic five gallon bucket, or in a 55 gallon steel drum, then it was up for grabs. Mm. Uh, the main reason is, uh, the, the main enemy to long-term food storage is mice. Uh, mice?
3: And I've
2: seen people that they thought that because they had an area that was closed and there was no water in it, that mice could not live in the environment. And they had pallets and pallets of, uh, uh, sacked grain, and the mice just had a heyday on it. And ruined it. I, I've seen it happen three, four, five different times. Hmm. Uh, glass is fine as long as you've got it properly cushioned, uh, so that if there's an earthquake, it's not going to fall over and smash. Sure. Uh, but you know the uh, the the optimum thing is number ten steel number ten cans, because when you open the can up, you've just got a short term amount of food supply, and you you haven't opened up a big five gallon bucket. But it's not necessarily cost effective to do everything that way. Uh, they also make these metal, I think they're a four-gallon tin. Uh, I discuss all this in detail in the book, and I go into all the details on how you long-term preserve food, whether it's uh, with uh, CO2, with nitrogen, or diatomaceous earth, and and there's there's a lot of options there, including what's called MREs. Um, I cover that all in detail. The, the other thing is water. It's very difficult to store water for long periods of time. Why? Uh, It just develops algae. Uh, You know, you can, if you have a water storage tank, you really need to go in there every two months and dump the water, put clean water in, and treat it with uh, uh, Clorox. And I've got the percentage of, you know, chlorine that you dump in there to chlorinate the water. Because water, water goes bad very quickly. Are
1: there not uh, newer uh, technologies like ozone systems?
2: Yeah, I uh, I I go through all of the means of water purification in this chapter, whether it's ultraviolet, whether it's a carbon filter, whether it's reverse osmosis, and I, right. I explain all the different options and how they perform and what the pros and cons are of them. What I really like and what I try to advocate people do is when you look at where you're going to put a shelter, see if there's any chance, look at the water availability. Uh, like in our shelter, we've got a well right inside it. And it's not that deep. It's only about 90 feet down to the water table. We've got an electric pump. We've got a backup electric pump. We can pull up our supply pipe and change the pump if we need to. And we've also got a hand pump in it. And we've also got a backup uh, water cistern. You know, I really like the idea of redundancy, but water is a very important issue. More people die in time of war from bad water than they do from bullets. Hmm. And I think the most important preparedness thing that anyone should buy, the first thing they should buy is water, a small water filtration u- unit, like the Katadyn units. Yes. Because, like, when the Kurds were fleeing Saddam and they got into these makeshift, makeshift uh, relocation centers up in the mountains, they were losing half their kids to bad water in those camps.
1: Right. Uh, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, you built a large shelter. Other than your family, which would be obvious, how did you decide who you would include?
2: Well, I organized it and put together a corporation, and people, with different families bought into it. And uh, that brings up another interesting chapter in the book called the management chapter. There's a lot of people that have an attitude that uh, you can't work with other people, and you're best just to go it alone. I've kind of... I don't believe that. I believe that there's strength in community and there's strength in numbers. Uh, No one of us is Mr. Rambo that's a brain surgeon and a diesel mechanic and a good cook all in one. You know, it's just we all have a particular facet that we're a genius in, if you know what I mean. Sure. And uh, if you can bring a group of people together and work together, uh, you've got more talent, you've got more resources.
1: So then in part, did you pick them for their talent?
2: No, no. <laughs> I I picked people for their concern and their commitment uh, to making it happen.
6: <laughs>
2: and uh, it wasn't me per se because I'm a real advocate of uh, group management as opposed to you know one little potentate that makes a lot of decisions. I organized uh, a team management structure. Uh, when we built a large structure, uh, the large facility, and we did it on a team management basis. So then,
1: focused. you you would not be the benign dictator,
2: right? I'm, I'm not a believer in benign dictators. I'm in, into the horizontal management structure, uh, and I go into this in the management section. And we learned a lot of lessons on, you know, how to draw up agreements, the do's and don'ts of working with a group. And how you can make a group effort succeed. You know, a lot of it goes back to the motives of the people who start and instigate the project. I've seen this over and over. If somebody has a less than perfect motive when they start the project, if if they're trying to make themselves a hero, if they're trying to make themselves some money on the side, uh, you know, it usually flavored the project right to the end and created problems, if you know what I mean.
1: I do. I do. Uh, All right. Would you be willing to answer questions from the audience? I know they've got many of them, uh, and I've got more, too. So if you would, hold on, and we'll be right back to you. All right? Okay. All right. Philip Hogue is my guest, and by now you ought to know what we're uh, talking about. Shelters from whatever. Nuclear devastation, chemical, biological, civil disturbance. Think any of that could happen? impossible you say well have you got a spare tire would you come knocking at his door we'll be right back
0: you're listening to art bell somewhere in time the night featuring a replay of coast to coast a.m from january 14th 1997 Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight's program originally aired January 14, 1997.
1: My guest is Philip Hogue. He's authored a book called No Such Thing as Doomsday, I guess, if you prepare. In the beginning of the book, a quote from Patrick Henry on threats. Quote, we are apt to shut our eyes against a painful truth. For my part, whatever anguish of the spirit it may cost... I am willing to know the whole truth, to know the worst, and to provide for it. End quote. If you are uninterested in the truth, what might occur, and what you could do should it occur, then you're going to want to tune out now to any one of the other radio stations that no doubt are talking about how somebody picked up uh, Newt Gingrich's phone call. Otherwise, we will continue here in a moment. Uh, Philip, uh, welcome back. Well, good to be back, Art. Um, We're going to go to the phones and let some of the uh, audience ask you questions. Uh, Again, the book, No Such Thing as Doomsday, Uh, at least for some people. Uh Uh-huh. All right. Some
5: people worry, others prepare.
1: Uh, fir- First-time caller line, you're on the air with Philip Hogue. Hi.
11: Hello, uh, Art. My name's Ted. I'm calling from Longview, Texas. Yes, sir. Listening over AudioNet. Oh, uh, my question, right. I don't have a question yet, but I want to tell him about a little something. There is a local regional supermarket chain uh, in our area that has a distribution center that services 250 stores. And uh, this supermarket chain is widely known as... Uh, has a trained security force which is prepared for the, in the event of a major emergency. They have 15 foot perimeter fences around the entire distribution center. There are heavy gauge steel sniper nests all over the tops of the buildings. And, uh, the security force does train and practices automatic weapons in the event that there would be some sort of a run on the, uh, uh, distribution center. And I always wanted to ask, uh, Philip if there, if he has heard of any other companies which have plans in place like this? No, uh, that's
2: very interesting, and I'd love to see some documentation on it. Uh, it doesn't surprise me in the least bit, uh, but uh, no, I'm sorry, I I haven't seen anything like this elsewhere in the country, but it, it stands to reason, especially, I would imagine if you investigated around the major population areas, you'd probably see similar situations.
1: I wonder if that is a, a privately done affair, or if it is mandated by the government. Uh, For example, uh, large radio stations that serve as emergency broadcast uh, uh, centers uh, were mandated by the government, subsidized by the government, to harden their broadcast locations. And I wonder if the government might have done the same thing with some food supply centers. Uh, Do you know, caller? Caller?
11: Uh, No, I do not know if the government has mandated that. However, this is a uh, family-owned company that's been around for about 60 years, and uh, they uh, do tend to be much more conservative than the uh, average uh, corporate leadership.
1: Well, and maybe it's private sector. Very interesting.
11: You brought up an important point there, though,
2: Art, uh, about the hardening of uh, broadcast equipment. Yes, sir. That's uh, another issue that I deal with. Um, in great length, is called electromagnetic pulse, EMP protection. Right. Um, and it's another thing people should be aware of. Uh, all of your government facilities are hardened against electromagnetic pulse, and I I go to some detail on explaining to people how they can protect their equipment.
1: All right. Uh, shielding. In other right. words. EMP
12: right. shielding.
1: Okay. Uh, wild Card Line, you're on the air. Um uh, with Philip uh, Hogue, hi.
12: Hi. Can you hear me okay?
1: I hear you fine. Where are you?
12: Uh, this is Will Madison, Wisconsin, listening to the great WTDY. Yes, sir. I just came back by a train traveling through Russia by a route few Western people take. Everywhere in the small train stop stations were still hanging on the walls Pictures of Lenin in the oh, conductor's yes. room. Oh, I know. Not necessarily in the small lobbies.
1: Oh, I look. I I went to a broadcast facility uh, uh, in um, uh, Saint Petersburg, and there was Lenin, a big bust of Lenin. Trust me, he's right. It's all over the place.
12: Oh yes, and uh, one of the towns, the big towns, there still stands a big statue in the square of Lenin. No, it's not all over yet until it's all over. Now, I have a question of the guest. Now, we have a problem, and even Art has mentioned it, and some of his advertisers, we are deeply in debt. Our debt is not decreasing, but it is increasing.
6: That's right. And
12: we're fudging with the budget. We talk about on-budget and (laughs) off-budget. And the off-budget, to take care of our paying of the interest, etc., the monies have been taken from our social security, from our Medicare, et cetera, et cetera. We're in a very hideous situation. And I would like the guest, I, I don't know how much the guest knows about what kind of skullduggery has gone on in the past and I apologize, Art, if I uh, you know, go into something a little bit and you cut me short if I'm getting on some Tender nerves, if you understand what I'm talking
1: about. Well, spend less time worrying about that and telling us what you want to tell us, sir. Go go ahead.
12: Okay. And I thank you kindly, and I thank uh, your holders of your uh, radio network for allowing average people to get on.
3: Right. Go right uh, ahead, sir. Hit it. Okay.
12: There has been a sugar daddy who has put a lot of money into a certain politician. And these men who play this game, they find young men who they can invest money into, so to speak. They're their horses. And every now and then these fellas meet. They call it the Landau Club. And they chat with how's their candidate doing. Somebody's gotten him in as mayor, somebody as governor, et cetera, et cetera. Finally, this sugar daddy got his horse to the finish line, got him into the nice big tent in Washington. All right,
1: you're going to have to finish this up now. What what what, you, what is your point?
12: The point is that that man now is sugar daddy Robert Rubin, Secretary of Treasury, and he has made billions playing the high leveraged foreign currency derivatives markets, and these gentlemen are ruining our currency and our country, and this man may be right on. We may have to prepare for something. So lastly, how do you prevent yourself from nerve
3: gas. All
1: right. Uh, I don't know how we got from derivatives to nerve gas. but
2: <laughs> Well, we can talk about that. There is a little link there between the economic situation and the threat of war. Yes. Uh, we have to look at, at a certain level, the United States is being subjected to economic extortion by the old Soviet Union. Um uh, the global group uh, is pumping money into the Soviet Union with the idea that we've got to placiate the bear, otherwise we're going to see a rebirth in the cold war, the dreaded cold war. But, you know, there's some big ironies going on here. Here is the Soviet Union. They're supposed to be bankrupt, but they're going ahead with their weapons programs. Uh they're still building nuclear submarines. Uh, they're upgrading their missile fleet. And they have the only operational space station in the world. Now, how can this be for a country that's bankrupt?
1: It's Look, a good question.
2: The, the other point is, is 8 out of 9, 8 out of 10 of their space shots are military-oriented. And they do more space shots in the U.S.
1: It's all a good question. I, I, I have no answers uh, except to say... What we think they are is not what they are. Simple as that.
2: You know, uh, I would be very concerned with the collapse in the U.S. economy because there have been defectors, high-ranking defectors from the Soviet bloc who have said that part of the plan, the long-term plan, was in the event of an economic catastrophe in the U.S., that would be a point to move on their war plans.
1: Let's say there was an economic catastrophe. Let's say that nuclear weapons did not fall. But anarchy began in this country. What would be the coin of the realm? What would be the major item that you would want to be holding?
2: Well, obviously, things of value and things of value pivot on things that are in demand. If there's a shortage of food, food is very valuable obviously the you know we've got North American trading out there. Uh, gold has always held its value um. And it's something to be careful about, because it could become illegal. We've seen that happen in the past. Um, the government has just gone out, or the people who control government have abscond- absconded that gold
6: mm-hmm.
2: uh, just before they were going to play with the currency, because they didn't want the small guys making games on their little games with the currency. But getting back to the logic of international finance, the
8: the Soviets...
2: Have us almost at nuclear black, at, uh excuse me, financial blackmail just over the massive loans that they've got. That if they said we ain't going to pay, they could destroy the Western economy. I mean, it's economic warfare.
1: Or I believe it was Clancy, I think, who wrote about the possibility of a consortium of uh, debtor nations who would simply suddenly declare they will no longer uh, pay us. Entirely possible.
3: And the
2: crime of it is that money is the people's money that was loaned by your friendly bankers, sure. at rates that American citizens turns in rates that we couldn't get. You know it's a
13: crime.
1: All right, east of the Rockies, you're on the air with uh, Philip Hogue. Hi.:
13: Hi. I understand, and this has been scientifically proven in court, that some people made machines that make more energy than they use, and such a machine in such Mm -hmm. a shelter as yours would be great for heating dirty water into steam, which can be turned into into clean water again, et cetera, really uh, helpful. So are you willing to contact any people with such machines so that you and they can combine your skills and form an independent community as a warm-up for when the real emergency comes. All
1: right, it's a good question. Philip, there are lots of people claiming to have machines yeah, that I, output more than they input. I, I would take it in, in the shelter business, you've looked into that.
2: Yes, uh, I'm, I know that that technology exists. <laughs> I mean, the ETs may be the only one that has got the operational stuff, but... <laughs> uh it exists i just haven't seen it you know it it seems like a, a million blind trails when you start chasing it uh if anybody's got it i'd love to talk to them. i've just never found uh well
1: you've been to the shows they've had shows where they claim they have demonstrations going well on. i
2: have some friends that bought a distributorship on a small engine that you know you can mix a lot of water in with the fuel but i still haven't seen the uh, I haven't seen it. You know, they've got a good
1: practical operating model.
2: Right. I just, just haven't seen it. I mean, I've got a very extensive section in this book in extreme detail on how to build uh, power generation systems, you know, uh, battery storage systems.
1: Yeah, what it, but that's conventional. What that's it, conventional. What but it usually comes, boy, down to, it. What it comes down to with these guys is usually you see some sort of machine or engine, and then there's a little black box. And you right. can't look in the little black box.
2: Yeah, I, I, I just, you know, uh, I wish somebody would do it. I think the fear of loss. Uh, I think we got two things. One is fakes, and two is somebody's really
4: got it, but they're f- afraid to let go of it.
1: Sure, West of the Rockies, uh, you're on the air with Philip Hogue. Hi. Well. Hello.
4: Um, I was wondering how much
1: these things cost. These shelters. How much do the shelters cost? <laughs>
2: Well, they can cost as much money as you want to throw into them. All right. how Or, much, uh, or they can cost as little. I mean...
1: All right. Your big 7,000-square-foot shelter, how much have you sunk into that?
2: Well, that particular shelter, you know, is pretty luxurious. You know, that costs about $6,000 a head. Wow. You know, but, I mean, you can, you can do something for as little as $500 a head. You can develop a little basement facility and stock it and make use of what you've got there and and survive. You know, it, it 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 can be done. Where there's a will there is a way and uh you know, the particular one that I built here is uh kind of a cadillac
1: Ar- Arma- Med- Ar- armageddon states.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but uh it can be done on a lesser fashion on a single family or a group of families can do something very cost-effectively, and I give all the information for the basics. What I did with this book is I took a lot of high-level engineering information in many cases, and I brought it all down to layman's terms because that's the way I operated. Sometimes it would take me weeks of trying to figure out what these guys are saying. Uh, Many times people in this field will try and intimidate you with high-level engineering uh, talk. Uh, as a control factor or as an ego factor. But if you really get down to it, it's all understandable. And, and that's what I tried to do in the book, to, to bring this down so you can make your own intelligent decisions and devise your own options.
1: All right. Uh, first time caller line, you're on the air with Philip Hogue. Hi.
2: Hi, Art.
1: Yes.
14: I'm in Salt Lake, and uh, I'd kind of like to know before I go to bed tonight if we're a target area. <laughs> you mentioned target areas.
5: Well, Salt Lake's a pretty good target
2: area. Where you've got fuel refineries, I, I discuss this in the book again and go through potential target areas. Fuel refineries, uh, you've got some uh, pretty good-sized military bases uh, up north of Salt Lake there.
14: We also have the Tooele Army Depot, and you know they're right. um, destroying chemical weapons there.
2: Right.
1: So uh, there you go, ma'am.
2: You know, uh, but then again, understand that If you live 12 miles away from the facility uh, and you're downwind, the biggest thing you're going to have to deal with probably is radioactive fallout, and it's not that hard to protect yourself against radioactive fallout particles. The big thing that's difficult is if you're living close to those targets and you've got to protect yourself against the direct effects of the weapon, and I talk about that in the book, You know, whether it's uh, neutron radiation, whether it's overpressure or heat, it's very difficult to protect yourself against that stuff. Um, and you don't have much time to implement the protective measures.
1: All right, ma'am.
14: Well, I don't know that I'll sleep tonight, but thank
5: you. <laughs>
1: sleep tight. <laughs> <laughs> East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Philip Hogue. Hi. Hello?
5: Oh, yes. Good morning, Art. How are you?
1: Fine. Where are you?
5: I'm in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Okay. Um. Yes, Philip, have you heard of a book called The Ultimate Frontier? Uh, no, I don't think I have. Uh-huh. Well, in there they um, say that the final battle of Armageddon will be in 1998 and end in November of 1999. And then it what? says, I guess, in May of 2000, it will be um, a reapportionment of the, of the Earth.
1: Well, no caller... He's not in the prophecy business. He's in the protection business.
3: Well,
5: what I'm talking about the reapportionment, what they talk about is a very major reapportionment where most of the United States will be thousands of feet under the ocean. So I don't know how a shelter would help in a situation like that.
2: Well, you know, you can can look at the worst-case scenario and throw up your hands and say, you know, what's the use? You know, there's a lot of people that have a lot of philosophies or prophecies. You've got Michael Gordon Scallion. You know, he talks about California being underwater or just being a chain of islands. Uh, You know, I don't know. All I can say is I would be very careful of the people that paint a picture of total doomsday. I'm going to find it hard to imagine that the United States is going to be completely underwater. Uh, But, you know, I'm going to make my preparations, use common sense, um, and that's what I'm going to do and that's what I recommend you do um, you know, you may want to get away from large cities and coastal areas um, We all we can do is look at the threats and make preparation you know,
1: you know that's easily said Philip, but most of the population uh, lives on the coast as a matter of fact, most of them live in the cities uh, hold on, we'll be right back to you and we will discuss that. That is where the population is in the cities on the coast.
0: You're listening to Art Bell Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from January 14th, 1997. to Art Bell, Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from January 14th, 1997.
1: It is indeed, and if you will run and get a pencil, we will answer the question, where do you get this book? So get your pencil and get ready, because I get requests every every day after we give the address or the phone number... The name of the book is No Such Thing as Doomsday. And it's a sort of do-it-yourself book. Very valuable. Get a pencil. We'll get you that information in just a moment. Back to the lines. First time caller line, you're on the air with Philip Hogue.
9: Hi. Hey, Eric. How are you doing? All right. Let me turn my radio off thank you how you doing tonight um i've uh, got a couple questions first this is big john calling out of Tucson k t u c yes sir uh today i was out photographing uh, one of the big planes that fly around D- davis Mountain here and uh then this other plane real nice looking jet uh, i think it was uh, someone drove by and asked if it was a b what is it a b 52 yeah b 52 new one i guess thing is humongous, outrageous, you know. It's an old 1952 vintage bomber that they've upgraded electronically. Yeah, yeah. This thing is amazing, though. It's like uh, real sleek and uh, everything else, you know. Well, it may have been then the B-2 bomber. Anyway, I was able to get a photograph. But uh, anyway, my question is, uh, I don't know if you can answer this or not, but uh, uh, I've got a, some, a couple acres down by Mexico. It's about six miles from the border there, uh, here in Arizona. And I was wondering, you know, uh, a lot of people told me that Mexico is a sleeping giant. And I was wondering, you think maybe one day, uh, is that, uh, property there, you think maybe it might be in a war zone at one time, or I don't know. What do you think? Well, is it a good place to build, you know, I mean, to put a shelter on? Well, get.
2: you know, if it's a rural place and it's isolated, um,
9: uh-huh. uh,
2: and you've got water, uh, I think that it's a viable potential. Uh, in the event of uh, a conventional war, and the Soviets and the Russians have always looked at nuclear war as something that they used in combination with conventional warfare. Right. Uh, there's always a potential uh, that you could see troops moving up through... Mexico, the Soviets do have some military installations uh in Mexico and really? they have some heavily you know, they obviously had a pawn sitting there in Nicaragua, they heavily armed Nicaragua uh-huh. with more that's right munitions and equipment that they ever needed for security forces. They had larger and greater plans. Um, and you got your buddy Castro over there, who right for years was putting over fifty percent of the nation's concrete resources into underground shelters huh. he did He didn't do that for any idle
9: reasons right, that's amazing. I didn't know that uh, that's a lot. no wonder why they're broke
2: <laughs> and you start looking at the defenses we have south on the southern borders of the United States, and it's a joke you know we've been shutting down
9: military bases uh you know. Yeah, well, you can uh, down in that area. Um, the war on drugs is evident because when you come back, you get stopped by the army, and they uh, check you out, make sure you don't don't have any drugs. I guess.
2: You mean the war on uh, the government's competitors?
9: Uh, well, <laughs> that's a possibility. I don't know. That's up to you, you and Art to discuss on he, the air. I guess. Said. Well, I'm not
2: an expert there, but
9: yeah. We um, need but uh, so the army, you know, uh, and they support Machuca down there. And uh back in 93 I guess uh they had a bunch of soldiers come back from uh uh from the war there. Um and uh, they were all wearing the blue berets of the uh it was the first time I ever saw that. You right. remember that art?
1: Yeah, oh yes. Uh-huh. Yeah.
9: But anyway, I'll let you go.
1: All right, thank you very much for the call, sir. <laughs> We're on the government's competitors. Got to remember that one. Wild Card Line, you're on the air with Philip Hogue. Hello.
8: Hi, Art. This is Andy in uh, Oklahoma City. Hi, Andy. Uh, I just uh, I heard your little short mention by your guests earlier of the uh, possibility that aliens would have some uh, uh, good uh, free energy uh... devices and i wondered if he, had <laughs> well, he
3: said they ones.
1: might have the workable ones
8: Oh well i yeah and if i wondered if he had any serious thoughts on possibility of what that might involve, as far as you know what his thoughts are on
1: that well, I think it was a facetious comment, sir. More right. di- more directed toward the uh, observation that there doesn't seem to be anything real and workable that we can lay our hands on.
8: I imagine as such. And, and on a more serious note, I want to know if he had any thoughts. And I look forward to trying to track down a copy of that book. Uh, and I did
1: get the information. Thanks. Is uh, it in bookstores, by the way? Uh, it's in
11: in some
8: bookstores. Like any of the larger chains? No, it isn't at this point. You
2: know. Unfortunately, the common man out there, there isn't a a big calling for preparedness. Your major uh, preparedness suppliers, most of them are carrying the book right now. Uh, Whether it's a survival center or safe trek outfitters, or Well,
8: I did get the mailing address, and that's good enough right all right good um well about about pole shift, the possibility of such and what kind of climate controls you may have prepared in your particular your own personal shelter for such you know if you are in a certain climate, if there was such an event
2: well, um, it might be different <laughs> it's kind of hard pole shift is is a theory, of course it's scientifically uh verified that it's happened many, many times uh, throughout the history of the Earth and we're potentially, give or take 100,000 years, maybe at the point for another one. Uh, It's kind of hard to tell where you're going to end up (laughs) when that stuff starts moving or what the real effects are, uh, that sort of activity. Uh, All you can do is bolt your equipment down really well and... uh, you know, what can I say? What uh,
1: about an earthquake? Now, an earthquake is a definite possibility.
2: The key is that buried structures are more or less immune to the effects of earthquakes because really? they move with the media. Now, when you've got a structure that stands up above the ground, right. the earth moves and the structure tries to stand still, and typically what happens is the house shears off at the weakest point, which is the foundation. And that's why you sure. see all these houses sitting in a quarter, two-thirds. They're completely off the foundation. Now, when it's a buried structure, it moves with the media, just like a submarine under the water in a typhoon, Makes as sense. compared to a ship sitting on the surface.
1: The only problem is, uh, Philip, uh, earthquakes uh, give less warning than ICBM attacks.
2: Oh, I agree. They're awesome. I've, I was in California during an earthquake, and it, it made me feel so little. When the earth shakes underneath you, it just makes you feel insignificant. That's right. Um, but I think I want to back up. The caller there mentioned something about the ETs. Uh, you know, I don't know. That's a hard one to relate to in terms of the preparedness aspect. But I kind of share your views, Art, that. When we look at the history of uh, one civilization of a higher technological advancement coming upon one of a lesser technological advancement, it has always resulted in abuse and ex- exploitation. Yes. And so I'm, I'm a little leery of the Space Brothers routine that, you know, you get the faxes coming in and the email.
1: Yep. Anyhow, we'll move on. All right. Um, East of the Rockies, you're on the air with
3: Philip Hogue. Hi.
15: Oh, hi, Art Bell? Yes. Oh, hi. Great show, as usual. Thank you. My name is uh, Kathy. I'm calling from Chicago, uh, the western suburbs, about five miles from O'Hare Airport. All right. Target area?
1: Target area, indeed.
15: (laughs) Well, I wonder if Mr. uh, Hogue uh, has... uh, had any thoughts on how long people would have to uh, be holed up, and how you know how many days rations they might need for different scenarios? I realize he hasn't got a crystal ball, but you know, say like if it was a limited terrorist attack, how many days you, before society started to function again?
2: Oh, and well, can you tell his last name? It's interesting. Uh, the government has actually done some studies. Uh, They estimated, boy, I've got it in the book here somewhere. I don't have the, forgive me if I give the wrong number. They estimated something up to uh, the fatalities, let's say a nuclear strike. Right. Let's say we had a nuclear strike on the populated target areas, uh, the target areas that have populations surrounding them.
1: Like Chicago. Uh,
2: The fatalities... Would be tremendous, all right? But you would have twice as many people that would die during the first year, according to government studies, from starvation and radiation poisoning, because of the breakdown of the infrastructure. So getting back to your question, everybody should have a one year food supply. Uh, now your question about you know how long would you have to stay in a shelter, uh, the second most important piece of equipment you can buy far as I'm concerned, is a survey meter, a radiation survey meter. They're a little pricey, but they really tell you if your shielding is working and Mm -hmm. if it's safe outside. Otherwise, you may not know. I mean, you're talking about something that's invisible, tasteless, and odorless. All right? And the other problem is in protracted nuclear war, you can have overlapping uh, fallout patterns. In other words, the radiation radioactive fallout can carry itself for the prevailing winds uh from targets upwind and dust you and in a protracted war not all the weapons are going to fall in one day. So that's where it's really important, and I've got an entire section here on radiological monitoring. You know, it's not that difficult to do, and I explain it in layman's terms. Um, and so those those are a few points. Uh, Getting back to this government study, what they came up with is in the event of a nuclear war, after the first year, the population of the United States, in terms of the quantity of survivable people, would be back to the population as it was in 1941. Wow. That's uh, a tremendous reduction in the population of the American people.
1: Well, what concerns me, Philip, uh, is A, the Russians, not the Soviets anymore, but the Russians still have almost all of their long-range, very accurate nuclear weapons.
2: And they have a National Civil Defense Network and an ABM system.
1: And uh, not a very stable
3: political system.
2: And you have to understand that war is a galvanizing factor. War is something that draws people together. And when you're faced with political breakdown of the system... One thing that can pull people together is war.
1: That's right. That's right. All right, uh, west of the Rockies, you're on the air with Philip Hogue. Hi.
13: Hi, Art. You may remember me from some recently sent email, and this would concern your caller, about the amendment to the uh, chemical and biological warfare law.
3: Ah, yes.
13: Um, The amendment stated that in 1982, that was the point that the Department of Defense had to report to Congress a month before they tested on people. Yes. But before that law, they only had to report once a year and after the fact.
3: Either way, it's disgusting.
13: Well, I mean, but after the fact and only once a year is
1: truly ridiculous. Well, 30 days notice is ridiculous.
13: Certainly, but after the fact is, to a certain extent, even worse. And the other thing that I would like to mention is that... (laughs) I know you speak of a lot of books on your program, uh, books that are sometimes hard to find. But as far as I can tell, you can find any book, no matter how rare, no matter how hard to find, at Amazon.com, which okay. I'm sure is a service you've heard of. No, but the the largest bookstore in the world at www.amazon.com, um, they they don't hold all the books at once, but they have connections to suppliers. Of books that are out of print have been way out of print. Currently in print, uh, a million books at a time, and any book, even though even ones that are out of print or haven't been printed yet, you can find them there and order them online.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much. That's a good resource. Uh, east of the Rockies, you're on the air with Philip Hogue.
5: Yes. Uh, have you mentioned anything about
1: Mormons? Mormon's well, we talked to a lady in Utah. No, no,
5: no. no, no. Uh, Mormons. Pretty much, as a, a tenet of faith, believe that in being prepared, and one of yes. one of the things that they normally do is have a year's supply of food.
3: That is correct.
5: So uh, if you don't know where to get a hold of a year's supply of food, which would be uh, packaged in tins, uh, nitrogen and all like that, you might ask a, a Mormon if you know any. In fact, uh, there's a very
2: good Mormon civil defense group out of Salt Lake run by a lady named Sharon Packard, and uh, they've been building shelters, um, one every two or three months in the Idaho, Utah uh, area, in Wyoming area, uh, a pretty strong Mormon civil defense group, although it seems like the Mormon church is trying to downplay
5: a lot of the
4: well, aspect.
5: It, it's not just a good idea to have it in case of a war. I mean, suppose oh, I you lose your job, you've got a year supply of food to fall back right. on. It's it's true. A very
2: good idea. The the, uh, the Mormon preparedness program and their community per- preparedness is uh, just a great example. They uh, they helped in the California flooding. Uh, there's so many examples where their whole system has just sprung right into action and been a great salvation.
1: All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Are you going to write another book? Is this your great work, or where do you go from here, John, Uh, Philip?
2: Well, actually, our next project, as soon as the ground thaws, we're going to do some video work. Uh, We actually want to build a shelter from scratch on video, totally for the layman. Uh, We want to dig the hole on video, we want to show them how to pour footings on video, and have it uh, a how-to in minute detail on video uh, for the person that wants to build a shelter. (laughs) So we take them from end to end, and uh, a guy that knows nothing and can hardly drive a nail, he can do it himself.
1: All right. You mentioned you know Elizabeth Clare Prophet. She uh, has promised me uh, that the next time she does a radio interview, and she has not been doing a lot of them. Uh she would do one with me. If you have any sway with her, I would appreciate a good word. Okay. <laughs> In the meantime, uh it has been a pleasure having you on the program.
5: Yes, and uh
2: for those who uh may have gotten on the log jam trying to get into your website, uh tomorrow I've I've got another website that I'm just opening up at No Doom. That's N O D O O M dot Simple Net. One word, simplenet.com. All right. Um, that's uh, on an OC3 uh, service out of San Francisco, and uh, it's really easy to get in and out of. I think we just got the text up tonight there, uh, but we'll have the graphics up tomorrow. and then...
1: All right. In the meantime, though, our website will, will get people to your website, right? It will get
2: me to my complete website here in montana which has all the graphics and everything
1: on it all right my friend i thank you and we will come back to you and have you have you back again thanks nice talking with you philip hogue thank you uh, from montana there you go folks do you feel sheltered <laughs>
0: you're listening to art bell somewhere in time tonight featuring a replay of coast to coast am from january 14th, 1997. originally aired January 14th, 1997.
1: Another hour of just open lines ahead. Anything you want to talk about, here we go. Anything you want to talk about now is fair game. The news, um, Israel uh, looks like it may be making a deal with PLO. We shall see. That news goes on forever. The OJ trial also goes on forever, although it actually may be wrapping up. How many photographs of those shoes now? The uh, the Democrats continue to pummel Newt Gingrich, uh, most lately with the um, contents of an illegally gathered conversation from a cellular telephone. That one is interesting, sort of. The uh, supermarket tabloid that had the photographs of the little uh, girl who was murdered has agreed now not to publish any more of them. The police have charged the Cowboys' accuser. Remember that uh, 23-year-old former topless dancer who falsely accused Cowboys star Michael Irvin and Eric Williams of sexually assaulting her at gunpoint? Now she has been charged the problem with the commuter plane now does not look like the right engine uh... at all they're looking at that now it looks like a stall in other words they tried to make a turn and when they made it they weren't going fast enough for icing conditions and went down like a rock that basically is the news East of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hi.
9: Yes, sir. This is Joe
16: in Missouri. Hi, Joe. Uh, I've listened to you for about three years now, and I enjoy your program. Thank you. But I just wondered if you've had your attitude since elementary school.
1: Yeah, I've had an attitude since then.
16: Okay. (laughs) Well, it seems to me that you always have the... Nana, na 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 I know something you don't know, and I can't tell you about it until later. And it, I guess, lends to getting listeners to the show. But uh,
1: Well, there's one thing about me, though. I, I follow through. If, well, uh, yes, if, sir, you have. If I say there's something I'm going to do, I do it. Well,
16: every man has to have, have his convictions, and I think you do very well.
1: I appreciate that. And I enjoy your show. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, sir. Take care. Uh, Yeah, I mean, look, there are secrets sometimes, things I can't tell you. For example, since you mention it, there's one right now. There is a new affiliate coming that is so big, so gigantic, that I literally burst to want to tell you about it. But can I tell you? No. Will you eventually find out? Yes. First-time caller line, you're on the air. Hi. How are you doing? Okay.
17: Um, I had some information for you about uh, some alternative housing. I was just listening to the previous caller about the uh, bomb shelters and whatnot. Oh, yes. And uh, I thought you might be interested to know that there is... I'm not speaking on his behalf, mind you. I just happened to know of him by reading some literature um, that he... uh, build houses out of recycled materials, uh, tires, aluminum cans, and whatnot. Really, I think the idea would lend itself pretty easily to this type of adaptation, since he's sort of a uh, um, disaster-minded, but not the sort of extreme disasters that uh, Mr. Hogue was speaking about—more uh, economic disasters or energy failures, this type of thing.
1: Well, those are extremes, sir. Believe me.
17: Well, they're they're extreme, obviously, but we're not talking like uh, you know alien invasions or nuclear explosions, but you know. Um,
1: Anyway I, I need a good sponsor for alien alien invasion shelters. <laughs> well
17: hey, well the the idea involved here, um, you know, I've I've been doing quite a bit of reading on it. I'm gonna be moving to Colorado myself probably to build one in a couple of years. Really? Yeah, the idea is that uh the house is heats and cools itself, collects its own rainwater, grows its own food, uh requires no grid electricity, municipal plumbing or anything like this. Wow. And um I really like to. I tried to get on the air with the.
1: Uh... Could we call it the chia house?
17: It, could, it would be similar to a chia house, yes. <laughs> 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 but it's uh, it's a it's an idea that uh, it's really a lay idea because it uh, doesn't require any special skills to build. Uh, he calls it an earthship. His name is Michael Reynolds uh-huh. um, at Solar Survival Architecture in Taos, New Mexico, and uh, this type of housing is uh, becoming pretty popular out west. Um, it's it's just accessible to people who don't want to spend a 150000 dollars on a yeah. crappy little house.
1: Well I've always been uh, uh thank you. I've always been very interested in underground homes anyway. We've got a number of them around here. I mean full underground homes. They're actually ecologically um very efficient. And not just in case of war or, you know, whatever disaster might occur. But as a matter of natural living, they're very, very ecologically efficient. Not big on windows, I guess, but uh, you know there's a new Japanese technology that allows sunlight to be transferred from the outside to the inside. It's really, really, really an interesting technology. And that would make underground living bearable. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hi. You would have been. Uh, wild Card Line, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I've been trying to get you on the radio here uh, from Chicago. Yes, sir.
4: But I haven't been able to find a number.
1: My goodness, WLS Chicago 890. 890. Hey, thanks a lot. Hey, you're welcome. Ah,
4: Only I'm in Philadelphia.
1: O- right. Only you're in Philadelphia? Yeah, because it's active.
5: Five and I tried to get you then, and I switched from uh, Charlotte or or Cleveland
4: to uh, Chicago, and I I can't find it tonight. I see. Uh,
1: Well, Well, I mean, radio conditions being what they are, you know, sometimes. Oh, I
4: I, I love you, and uh, thanks for so so much uh, spiritual uh, wisdom, and uh, and maybe that's exaggerated, but um, I wish you'd be more positive about you know, we'd all love to have a shelter. But if you think positively, don't let that negative stuff happen, you know. Well, you, uh, you, you that's... Prepare, uh, but, but but pray and keep, keep the
1: well, negative I th- away. Th- I think that's what he was saying. Uh, that, look, I'm all for thinking positively, but I'm also very aware of what's going on in the world. And what Mr. Hoag said was pretty much right on with regard to Russia, China, Korea... The world situation, what may occur the next few years, what I call the quickening, however you want to put it together, he was pretty much right on. Now, there are attitudes. Like the guy said, who called me a little while ago, about my attitude. There are attitudes, and if your attitude is who cares, then who cares? You know, just live your life. First time caller line, you're on the air. Uh,
5: Yes, sir. Uh, This is in reference to uh, the guest he had on last night.
3: Uh, oh, yes.
5: I was unable to listen to the rest of your show, and I don't know if he gave the address for ordering his catalog or not. I was just curious if you had that.
1: Yes, I gave it, and luckily for you, I saved it. Oh,
5: thank you so very
1: much. Are you ready? Yes, sir, I am. It is. R-R, as in railroad. Yes, sir. R-R-1, mm-hmm. box 79. Box uh, 79. Clearwater, Nebraska.
4: Clearwater,
1: Nebraska. Nebraska, got it. Zip code six eight seven two six. Six eight seven two six. Yep.
5: All right, is there any other information that I need to provide for this? Just ask for the catalog.
1: Um, yeah, I I mean, I mean I think it was a buck or something. Okay. All right.
16: All right. Thank you so very much.
1: Take care, and I'll look forward to those of you who get the catalog. And uh, call me up and tell me. I I should get one myself. He really ought to send me one for having him on, huh? I should have mentioned that. Be cool to have on your, uh, you know, even if you don't get the machine, just the catalog on your coffee table. Imagine that. Time travel catalog. Out there with National Geographic. East of the Rockies, you're on the air. Yes,
18: Art. Um, This is Pat from Kansas City, Missouri. And I have the theory that there are times when death is a blessing.
1: Are oh, there are times what? Death is a blessing. Death is a blessing.
18: Death is a blessing.
1: Right. Well, I'd I mean, st-
18: if, if that's the kind of world I have to live in, yeah. I would rather
1: be dead. Well, you know, there's a lot of people with that attitude. That's cool. I mean, just go out. You know, if uh, they give you 30 minutes warning, there's incoming. You go out and you. Look at the sky, greet your maker, and wait for the flash. I mean, cool.
18: Well, that was my thought.
1: All right. Well, um, good luck, and uh, blessed be. East of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hi. Uh,
18: morning, Mr. Bell.
1: Good morning. Oh,
18: uh, Lance from uh, Port St. Lucie, Florida? Yes, sir. Listening to 1590. Yes, sir. A little tiny speech. Uh, I got a fistful of things for you this morning. All right. Um, One, the Ebonics issue. Okay. Um, I don't understand why they want to try to get teachers to understand slang. You know, children speak. I mean, it's not a black or white issue. It's a it's a slang thing that everybody speaks when they're young.
6: hmm You know, I
18: mean, it's not something that... I mean, if you write, you know, something in slang on a test, then, you know, you shouldn't get credit for it, you know. Part of the test is that, you know, if you can answer clearly and, you know, respond to what's on the paper.
1: Well, I think what they were suggesting was that that is the language... The slang, if you will, that is being used, and in order to bring them toward a proper use of English, they're going to deal with ebonics.
18: Yeah, but I mean, on, on the way. Yeah. Oh, I can understand, but I mean, slang.
1: I mean, that's all I could conclude.
18: That's not something you should bring into school. I mean, you should know. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, most people who speak slang know that that's not their full language. I mean, you know. I mean, right. They, they tried to say it was something from you know. North African villages from a long time ago. Well, I'm sorry, but how many you know, people do you know that can even speak African? More or less a derivative of an African language, you know? Not at all. Um, another thing about the airplanes, how people were saying, oh, well, I'm not going to get on an airplane if it was built in 86. That plane's, you know, 10 years old or 15 or 20 years old. Well, I could understand. I wouldn't want to get in a car that, I mean, people, you know, they're compared to their cars, you know. Well, Ford doesn't build their cars to last 20 years. You know, Boeing builds planes to last, and if it's a decent maintenance plan, they do. I mean, if, if you fix your car as much as they fix their plane, That's I'm, not, true. I'm not saying, you know, that every plane gets fixed quite as much as it should, or, you know, somebody you know says, oh, I'll catch us next time. That's human error. I'm talking about, you know, regular maintenance plans that you follow. I mean, people, I mean, if you, if you look at, you know, and, you know, the airbag thing, um, companies, you know, General Motors, and then they, you know, airbags, you know, they figured that out in the mid to late 60s. They didn't put it in because they knew, you know, the physics just didn't work. I mean, you have a car going 60. You know, people don't realize you hit a wall or a tree, that's instant. That's instantaneous stopping. And you want an airbag to deploy and to keep you safe? That airbag has to come out at 60 or more to keep you in the car. Right. Well, the physics just doesn't work. I mean, a seatbelt is better because it doesn't come at you. You know, it's, it's it's like you hitting the wall, and the wall hitting you back to keep you in the car. That doesn't work. I mean, people were actually putting their kids in the front seats and expecting them, you know, I mean, you don't put kids in the front seats in the first place. But they said, oh, I have an airbag. It's okay. Well, you get offended, but that airbag pops out. That's human error. It's not the company's fault. It's your fault. You're the one who put the kid in the front.
1: Yes, but nobody said you couldn't. Yes,
18: they the, did. No,
1: I don't think they did. Well, I mean, so they are now, but...
18: Well, even then, I mean, when you bought a child seat, you know, for your baby, it says install in back
1: seat. In the back seat, yeah.
18: Not in the front seat. Right. You know, just because you're lazy to put the seat up, to push, you know, it's a pain in the butt, I can understand it, you know. I don't know how that goes, but I mean, it's just...
1: All know, right, it. my friend. Thank you very much. It's true. Uh, but I think in the beginning, when they first came out with airbags, There were no warnings that I knew of about children. How about the rest of you? Uh, First time caller line, you're on the air.
19: Hello, Art. Hello. Oh, I want to thank you for your program. It's enthusiastic and fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. Yes, I have a question. Okay. Of what purpose does a nuclear holocaust or war uh, serve? when, you know, uh, with nuclear weapons and destruction, there's nothing left.
1: Well, that's exactly what my guest was saying would not be the case. Frankly, I don't know. There are scientists who say there will be nuclear winter, the earth will be poisoned for tens of thousands of years, and then others say, no, nuclear war is survivable.
19: Now, I have something else. Yes? Oh, excuse me. My name is Carol from Portland. Right. Um, Isn't it interesting about the Kennewick man, the bones? Oh, yes. Because everyone wants them. But what's so interesting about this new find is that they may not be Native American.
1: Well, that's right. That's what the big argument is right now.
19: Yeah, now isn't that something?
1: Mm-hmm. Well,
19: thank you for your program.
1: Thank you. Take care. Nobody knows for sure. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hi. Hey,
19: cool, Art. Hey, you're my. It's
15: my. You're my nighttime babysitter. Remember me from last time?
1: Uh, I recall your voice. Yes.
15: I have MS. Yes. Yeah. How you doing? I finally got through.
1: <laughs> I'm doing fine.
15: Good. Good. I'm. Um, I just got over a little uh, episode with my um, MS. I take, um, can I say the medication I take? Why? Oh, it's, call, it's called beta And it gives you, like, after you get your shot, yes. I get it every other day. Yes. I get a fever and chills. And I just shake. Oh, God, it's terrible. Bummer. So I just finally like, woke up. That
1: <laughs> is a bummer. Yeah. And so that's why you're awake at night a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay.
15: Yeah. Like, so I caught your, uh, that was very interesting. The last, the what I caught in the last few what he was talking about, but the shelter. Yes. Very interesting. Yeah, we always we always keep extra food to step in the house.
1: So where would you go if something terrible was coming? Where would you run?
15: I live in Grants Pass, Oregon.
1: Ground know zero, no doubt. Yeah. You
15: hmm. Know. Maybe jump in the river. The river's right behind my house. Maybe there.
1: Jump in the river. <laughs>
15: I don't know what I would do, but that would be the only place I could go. We do have a uh, <laughs> National uh, National Guard um, armory about five five, ten miles away, but I don't, uh-huh. by the time it gets there, you know, forget it.
1: That would be my guess.
15: Uh-huh.
1: So you just jump in the river, and that way you'd be conveniently floating away. There you go. Mm-hmm. All okay. right. Well, thank you very much for the call, and uh, good swimming. Wildcard Line, you're on the air.
16: Hi, Art. um, Have you heard of the show What If on the Discovery Channel?
1: No, I've done lots of What If shows, though.
16: Yeah, tonight was a really good one. It's a show that hypothesizes different things that might have happened in history.
1: Yes, and what did they do it on? And
16: tonight was a very realistic documentary-style thing, as if um, in 1997 radio telescopes had picked up an intelligent signal from space
1: oh yes i knew that was coming and it was really good all right all right Uh, what did what was the uh, scenario in other words they picked it up and what did they think would be the consequence um
16: what they did it, it, it just followed along from 1997 to 1999 from doubt to uh to belief to debate the united nations Um, They held a news conference, realistic news conference, just like they did about the Mars rock. And um, um, in the end, they found out it was a machine, and they theorized. And then they had the real people on that were in that real conference. They interviewed them at the end. And they said, um, Mr. Shuftik in particular, said that he thought we have to be prepared that if we do pick up a signal and it's from a machine, it could be, Um, a machine built by another machine, something about intelligent machines, that just because we're biological, Mm -hmm. we should be prepared for something else, too. Very Interesting.
1: What did they say the social implications would be?
16: Social implications were um, everything from the Islamic world saying, and and also militias in this country saying it was to do with New World Order and um, just a scam or something to the United Nations demanding um, opening the signals to the whole world. But it was very interesting.
1: The religious people would assume that it was the rapture mobile.
16: Mm Yes. And by the way, um, I have a habit now. Sometimes I do interviews with people, and um, no matter what the interview is about, like tonight I interviewed some choir members who will be at the inaugural. Yes. And at the end, it's because of you I ask them, what do you know about UFOs? Really? And she said she's a member of a church. She said, I believe there's something out
1: there.
0: Of course there is.
1: Of course there is. We'll be right back.
0: You're listening to Art Bell Somewhere in Time. Tonight featuring a replay of Coast to Coast AM from January 14th, 1997. Of Coast to Coast AM from January 14th, 1997.
1: I want to enlist the um, the help of some ham operators out there. I know a lot of hams listen. I've been getting uh, a lot of faxes and a lot of email about strange signals located uh, generally between 5 and about 8 megahertz. 5 and 8 megs. And if some of you would do some listening, some of them in the uh, five meg band, some six meg band, uh, I would really appreciate the frequencies. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do about it, because every time I've aired one of the frequencies, the signal has stopped. And I mean, these really are weird, and I've been listening to uh, signals on shortwave for all my adult life. so. I'm not making any claims about what they are or might be, just that there are some very, very strange signals that have been popping up. And if you have a frequency, please send it to me. Buy fax at area code 702-727-8499 or email at artbell at aol.com. That's artbell at aol.com. And by the way, I'm uh, presently sitting up in one of my own chat rooms on my web page right now, the general chat room. So, if you're able to get in, if you have Java, Windows 95 and Java, come on up into the general chat room and you'll see me there. All right, back to it. We go. Open lines. First time caller line, you're on the air, all right, yes,
14: oh gosh, <laughs> uh this is morning star in las Vegas. how you doing uh well, I'm doing very well, thank you, and I can tell you're doing better. Oh, uh, thank you. you sound like you feel good now
1: a little better. I've been fighting a you know something
14: oh well um i was I began ringing um when the gentleman. Uh, called much earlier in the program about, he was speaking about Lenin and Russia. Yes. Those, well there is a statue of Lenin in Seattle and I am very interested if anybody can substantiate for sure the rumors that I've heard that um, Gorbachev is ensconced in San Francisco at uh, our naval base.
3: Yes, that's correct.
14: And that the Chinese Navy is building a naval base in San Diego.
1: Now, that one I hadn't heard.
14: No, well, I did hear it from someone who lives in San Diego, and I was just wondering if somebody could substantiate that, because what that does effectively from north to south is cover us with communism on the entire west coast. (laughs)
1: Well, uh, thank you, Morningstar. No, I hadn't heard about the naval base, uh, the Chinese naval base in San Diego. That's a new one. But uh, I do know about Gorbachev, certainly. And I definitely know about Russia. For those of you who think Russia has really changed, uh, you really have your heads in the sand. It has not. I could tell you a very embarrassing story, which I will not relate right now about Moscow. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hello. Yes,
5: Art? Yes. It's Mike from Grand Junction, Colorado. Uh, Welcome. Okay, listening to your show tonight, uh, gentlemen with the shelters. Yes. I was wondering if uh, you had uh, pressed the point about firearms. Uh, I, I got in on it late coming home from work, so I didn't hear if there was anything about that.
1: Uh, well, yes. I mean, it was—it's it's obvious, and he didn't. Uh, we didn't have to press it. If you have a shelter, and something really bad happens, and people know you have a shelter, you are going to have to defend yourself. Uh, it does not take a rocket scientist to conclude that.
13: Yes.
5: Uh, also, what I'm wondering is uh, if you had said anything about what the government is doing to our rights for firearms.
1: Well, uh, they're slowly closing in i mean you're you're asking the obvious, sir well
5: yes, sir, but i'm I'm just uh wanting to get that in there a little bit. I, I see. apologize for the the way I'm doing it, but uh, I think uh sometimes asking questions of people is better than just giving them the answer
1: I see um all right well um the answers uh, are obvious uh Barbara Boxer, as a matter of fact, just introduced a bill. That will put, um, interestingly, um, uh, seeks to uh, put quality uh, controls on U.S.-manufactured weapons. Quality controls. And she makes a case that we have quality controls for imported weapons. Why not for those made here? First time caller line, you're on the air. Hi.
20: Hi. Hi. Um my question uh, pertains to that. Uh, the the guy was talking earlier in the evening. He said that one of the things that we would want to hang on to would be gold. And I never could understand what use that would be. You know, hanging on to something that, like, you know, you can't eat, you can't burn it, it's not fuel or, or nothing. What good would it be?
3: Well,
1: throughout all of history, uh, gold has been a... Uh, medium of exchange. Now, in an emergency, food, weapons, uh, water, right, right, and gold would be staples of. So, like, if we price. had
20: to go back to, to when, uh, where we were starting all over again with, with money, then gold would be our standard. Well, let me
1: put it this way, sir. If you and I were going to make it an exchange, let's say you had a lot of food and I didn't. Uh uh-huh. Okay. Um, uh, you had food, guns, and all the basics, and I wanted something, uh, and I, I gave you a $100 bill, you'd laugh in my face.
20: Right, but I probably would do the same thing with gold, too, because what could I do with it? I mean, I could eat, and I could hunt with my weapons and my food. That's
1: correct, but there's always going to be a medium of exchange. Yeah. And Now, some of it is going to be barter, but when you get down to it, uh, gold is going to be the thing. There's no, no question about it, sir. Okay. And then I mean, do a little was, bit of research. Go back through all history. Gold has been the medium of exchange.
20: Right. Okay. Another thing was that a guy, another guy mentioned earlier about that thing on uh, what if. If you get a chance, I would, I'd look at that. That was really good. I saw that tonight, too, and I recommend it. If you can get a copy of the tape or something, you should check that out. It was pretty cool.
1: I wish I had seen it.
20: You know, I, I recorded it. I'd be happy to send it to you. Would you? Um yeah, I don't really have your address or nothing. Um
1: oh, Well, I'll give you my address. Okay, go ahead. It's Art Bell. P uh,
20: Art Bell. Yep, yep, yep. Okay.
1: PO
4: box PO box
1: 4755 4755 in Parump. Parump? P- yes, yes, yes. P A H Uh-huh. R U M P. Nevada. Yes, the place okay. destroyed by the Martians. Uh, zip, zip code 89041.
20: 89041. Dash. Dash? S- oh, okay, dash. dash 4755. 4755. 5. Yep. I'll change you that for an 8x10. How's that? I got both both ones that they showed. They showed the one on the earthquakes the night before, and then they showed um, the one tonight about what if the aliens, you know, what if Roswell, What you know.
1: Why do you think... Why do you think that they are showing programs like this?
20: Yeah, I I know exactly why. They're it's a subliminal program to get us thinking in that direction. So that when they drop the bomb on us, you know, or the the you know, when they crack it open, it's it's not going to be that big of a surprise.
1: Now, I really do agree, sir. Thank you uh, very much. I really do agree. And again, remember I am making no claims ...about signals being heard. However, boy, I'll tell you, uh, there have been some very strange signals between about 5 and 8 megahertz. And every time I have broadcast one, it has disappeared like that. Get me those frequencies, and a group of us will investigate them, and at the right, right, right time, make them public... But there is something, uh, going on. Wildcard Line, you're on the air.
4: Hi, oh, Art. You are a wonderful person.
1: Well, I don't know about that.
4: Well, anyway, this is Tom, from, uh, listening to you on KEX. Yes, sir. Um, yesterday I was listening to your, your friend Steve, uh, 7.8. That's, that's the killer. Um, I, everything, um, I've been playing with time travel for, oh, years now. And, uh, the protocols and rules that, to control time travel. Um he's got it all wrong. But the thing is that um you, the mechanism
1: you, you've got it all right.
4: No, what, no, what I'm saying is that um that um our relationship is between energy and um and mass. And uh electromagnetism is a dimension outside of ours. A dimension is defined by infinity, um, an infinite quality, a finite quality, and a base. And that's what defines a dimension. Well, electromagnetism doesn't have an infinite quality that you can measure in our dimension, I mean, in our relationship. We're a phase between two dimensions. When he jumps into this this machine... um, I don't know what's going on, but the thing is that our relationship is that that magic seven point eight which you you know you touched on uh am I getting confusing
1: to me you are yes I mean the seven point eight I certainly understand that frequency uh but beyond that, I'm not sure
4: okay um let me let me make um an interesting thought, okay, there's a distinct difference between Tuesday and New York. Um, Tuesday is measured in hours and minutes. You can't measure New York in hours and minutes. You can't measure Tuesday in feet and and miles They're distinctly different things. We are a relationship between those two different things we're f-
1: well, what if you're in New York on tuesday
4: that's that's the whole point we are that's where we are but that's um consciousness occupies a place. Between two dimensions, where the relationship between two distinctly different things, your body has this, has occupies inches and feet. Your mind, which is the synaptic connections, the dendrites and 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 um, axons, they, I mean, your your mind is not is is not a thing that occupies space. It occupies relationships.
1: Like time does like oh, okay does. okay, okay, let look, I'm not understanding all of this, so let us cut to the chase, okay, do you have a time machine
4: oh uh, no i tra- I travel in time, but that's different i mean um i I do the remote viewing thing,
1: oh, I see, so it's
4: it's i mean,
1: um, well, that's not the same,
4: no, it isn't it's 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 hard the thing that 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 struck me was i'm listening to this guy, and I'm thinking you know just like you were probably that um aside from the fact that he doesn't he doesn't come over very well you know he he can't speak very well besides that the thing is that he's saying key things that are telling me you know there's got to be something to this
1: well that's what i thought too um i don't go by the way somebody delivers what they say i go by the t- the content of what they say and um his delivery was halting, but his content was um, haunting, and uh, that's why I kept him on. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hello. Hello.
7: Is this Harp Bell?
1: Turn your radio off, please.
7: Got that off. There you um, are. Um. You remember when uh, Dukes of Hazard were popular in the late '70s? I do. Okay. Then Sheriff Lobo ca- came out, and a whole bunch of other spinoffs like. Yes, they. We weren't trying to gear us to hillbillies, and the reason that uh, there's so many shows about uh, aliens. Yes, is because X Files sold.
1: Because it is popular.
7: Yeah, pretty much.
1: Entirely possible.
7: Probable, actually.
1: Well, possible.
7: That's all I really wanted to say. You do you do this a lot, you say, oh, they're trying to gear us up, And I don't think Hollywood knows that aliens are coming any more than we do. Hmm. We have, you know, we have theories. I mean, I believe in extraterrestrials. You'd kind of be foolish not to.
1: I agree. But but are they preparing us? Uh, Maybe not. Uh, All they're trying to do is, you're suggesting what uh, Hollywood does, and that is sell movies and TV shows. Well, sure. There's some of that. But look, there's also this. There's a reason why all of this is selling. There's a reason why it's popular. And I just don't... I, I think that it has more to do with the fact that at one point we, we loved westerns. You remember that? Or the Dukes of Hazard, or whatever else. There's more to it. There is an awakening. Wildcard line, you're on the air. Hi.
5: Hey, Art. How's it going?
1: Okay. This
4: is T in Vegas.
5: Hey, uh, is is there any uh, anti-grab machines besides the Levitron that you uh, got out there?
1: Um, I don't know.
5: Uh, I mean, as far as like people claiming they got uh, zero G devices.
1: Um. Yes, I'm working on a couple of others. Yes.
5: Okay. Because, uh, um, what would you think would happen if you shot? And, uh, weight up in one direction, the opposite direction of gravity.
1: I think that it will come down and hit you on the head. Right, if well, you, if, if you it came
5: down river. softly at a soft angle, and, and it hit and canceled out its weight at the top of its uh, oval, what's going to happen? It's going to cancel out most of its weight at the top part of its track system.
3: Trajectory. Yeah. Right,
5: exactly. So all that weight is going to stop there dead, but it's going to be Driven into the top part of that machine,
1: like the Road Runner.
5: Uh, yeah, sort of, exactly. Yes, you kind of visually.
3: <laughs> yes.
5: But uh, now imagine weights going around like clackers. You remember clackers?
3: Yes. Those
5: things you clack together. Sure. Okay, if you had something that spun clackers around with like weight balls on the end of them, <laughs> and they clacked at the top. Yes. Do you re- realize how much energy would be distributed?
1: Uh, no, but why don't you run the test and let me know.
5: I will. I'm going to. And uh, remember, I am T from Vegas. I've got you. Okay, buddy.
1: Thank you, T. East of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hi.
5: Hi. If you read some of the uh,
10: well-documented books of, uh, say, Felix Green and Noam Chomsky, Chomsky, you learn some things uh, such as uh, uh, Republican Senator Arthur Vandenberg uh, advised Republican uh, Harry Truman in the late 40s uh, that uh, he had to scare the hell out of the American people, as he put it, Against the uh, Soviet Union, uh, to justify Truman's plans for a massive uh, network of uh, military bases and military interventions around the world. Uh, to justify this, he said he had to enlist the aid of the uh, corporate media and scaring the hell out of the American people uh, uh, to uh, shift the blame to the Soviet Union and the, and the foreign threat. And I think that that's the really politically correct propaganda we've been subjected to. And I find it really, especially hypocritical and infuriating that some of these right-wingers, like uh, your guest uh, uh, Philip Holger, uh, uh try to disguise themselves as a, for, a so-called for-the-people uh, popular swimming against the politically correct tide, when they're doing just the opposite. They are actually surfing on on parroting that ocean of uh, politically correct Cold War, uh, anti-Soviet, uh, uh, foreign threat, uh, scaremongering propaganda that the uh, Military-industrial uh, complex, uh, interlocked. Uh, In other words, media. you think
1: the whole Cold War was a bunch of BS? Is what it boils down to, right?
10: Well, I think you're wrong, sir. Well, I think you know it's very easy. Sir, you're wrong. No, no, no. Sir,
1: sir, you, sir, sir. I'm not. You're sir, sir, sir. You're wrong. Well, I'm, the I'm the Cold you're War. It's very easy no, to, I'm not wrong.
10: To repeat these premises and quote from Red Dawn and all of these lurid movies. Forget
1: and, Red, and just Red just Dawn, movies sir. Movies Take a look at the. Are uh, you familiar with the SS 18? Hello.
10: Yeah, you know, I, I have. Sir, to... are you?
1: Uh, answer the question. Are you familiar with the SS 18?
10: Not in, in in detail.
1: Oh, that's too bad. Because if you were, you couldn't possibly make the kind of statement you're making. These are missiles with multiple uh, re-entry uh, warheads designed to take our cities out, and they're still there. So don't feed me this there's no threat baloney. Wildcard line, you're on the air. Hi. Hi,
13: Art. How about your condition? You might possibly have strep throat. I don't know if you've considered that, but a lot of people, including me in L.A., caught this.
1: Well, I might have strep throat.
13: And it wears you out for. A I might of days. have
1: cancer. I might have leukemia. I might uh, have a cold. Well, <laughs> Who It
13: has, has a great, a great signature. It gets you real sick for a couple of days, and you feel drained for weeks and weeks, and it doesn't kick with anything but, uh, but uh, antibiotics. That helps a little bit. Um,
1: Look, couple... do me a big favor. Mm-hmm. Say good night, America.
13: Good night, America, from the Art Bell Show.
1: <laughs> That's it. We're out of time, everybody. You have a great night, and I shall heal. I think. Good night, all.